You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. You're late. To the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jim Vendiola. Hey, Mike. Hey, Sam. It's great to be back here with both of you. This episode marks the 10th anniversary of the projection booth. Here we are looking at Peter Strickland's 2014 film, The Duke of Burgundy. It's the story of a couple, Cynthia and Evelyn, and their relationship in a world of women, where lepidoptery seems to be the stock and trade of its denizens. The film examines the slow decline of Cynthia and Evelyn's relationship. We will be getting into spoilers as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Duke of Burgundy, just turn off the podcast, go away, watch the movie, come back, we will still be here. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Duke of Burgundy and what did you think? Okay, first of all, happy anniversary. Thank you. For some reason, I read your notes that this was the 10th anniversary of Duke of Burgundy, not the 10th anniversary of the projection booth. And I was like, huh, I don't remember it coming out 10 years ago. <laughs> 2014, 2021. It's the new math. Quarantine. There's no more time. There's no more math. 
But to answer your actual question, I saw it pretty much right after it came out and was both blown away and frustrated. The reason I was frustrated was not with the film at all, which I love, but I was really frustrated with the critical reception because when I first came across reviews... I'm somebody who is not really wild about recent genre movies, and I usually don't go out of my way to see them. With this, it was presented to me as like kind of in the ballpark of Euro horror. Every review I read made all these references to like Jess Franco and John Rollin and things like that. And when I saw it, it's like, yeah, I, I get the influence, but like, this is way more of a melodrama, which I think is what makes it so powerful. But I wish the reviewers would have said that. It's like, this isn't a Euro horror movie. Yeah, it does seem to be regularly misunderstood in its references. I was listening to uh, something last night where the two hosts were talking about it like a Giallo film. And I was yeah, like, no, hell? no, that's that's his previous film, to be sure, inarguably, but not this one. This is a problem that a lot of reviewers have with movies that they don't understand. It's like if it doesn't fit into a neat little box, what are we supposed to do with it? That definitely applies to all of his films, which I love. But it's like, how could you see this? And not go, okay, like, if, if you have to, as a reviewer, if you feel like you have to compare a film to another subgenre or to another director, wouldn't you go with Fassbender or Douglas Sirk? Why would you make people think that they're jumping into a Jess Franco movie when this, it's definitely got those Euro horror references, but they're so subtle and they're really only visual. They don't have a damn thing to do with the plot. It's like, I just want to line Looney Tunes style. I want to line up all those reviewers and just go down the line and slap them all in the face just with one giant slap. <laughs> well, it also might be this veiled puritanical lens that they're sort of approaching totally. the film with, right? Where they just are like, oh, this movie's sleazy. It's like attempting to be art. Oh, that's like Suspiria. I think you're dead on. Jim, how about yourself? When did you see it and what did you think? I saw this at Chicago's Music Box Theater in March of 2015. And the only stuff I really knew about it was from similar reviews. So good or bad, I you know, my interest was was peaked regardless. Really, mainly what I knew was that there was a lesbian S&M slant to it, as well as 70s throwback aesthetics. So between those two things, you know, I was already on board. But another thing that interested me was that just a month prior, I had seen the first Fifty Shades of Grey movie. Oh, no. And was super, super skeeved out by it, you know. And I don't know if there will, will be any contrary debate in that regard about that movie. Uh, I'm guessing not. But I went into Fifty Shades thinking it was going to be dumb and cheesy. And I found myself actually, like, really shocked by how rapey it was and how it interpreted BDSM as essentially, like, domestic abuse. Going from that to Duke... It was really like a breath of fresh air. I loved it on first viewing, felt like the exact opposite of 
50 shades. And then I went back and saw it again the following week. And I brought along a couple of sex positive queer filmmaker friends of mine who also ended up loving it. I got to introduce other people to the film immediately as well. I have never seen any of the Fifty Shades movies, and I really want to watch them because I'm convinced that they're going to just be mindless trash that I can kind of hate watch. But I haven't because of exactly what Jim just said. I find those mainstream depictions of S&M relationships as basically just abuse to be super offensive. Hollywood in particular, they cannot bring themselves to portray S&M or even any kind of like non-vanilla and certainly in the past even queer relationships in a remotely healthy way and it either has to be done for comedy or is something to be made fun of as is so often the case with sadomasochism it's basically presented as being the same thing as abuse it enrages me so much that like as much as i want to laugh and hate watch 50 shades of gray i don't know if i can do it yeah yeah or if not um actual abuse there's this like you know at least a healthy or unhealthy implication that it's tied to something dysfunctional or mental illness or you know again like you said really negative they can't do anything kinky in mainstream media without shaming it or demonizing it or making it like unintentionally illicit it's funny that we are already talking about this like two minutes into the podcast basically but definitely in interviews Peter has talked about the fact that people kind of assumed, maybe he read this in some interviews, or maybe this is what he heard from some critics, but people assumed that this would become a thriller, and that maybe Cynthia would accidentally or on purpose kill Evelyn or something along those lines. And it just fascinates me so much that like, not even other film critics can handle the idea of like, okay, this is really just a melodrama about an unhappy relationship. But just because there's sadomasochism doesn't mean someone has to be murdered. Like, what the hell? No matter how much we would like to think, we are still so retarded in our views and just think every time we see lesbians on film there's going to be an ice pick involved you know we we are just five minutes after 1991 when it comes to how we look at films so many times and it's just come on guys let like you said let's see a healthy homosexual relationship please or even like a healthy relationship that has S&M in it, and definitely something that we'll have to talk about a little bit later once we get more into the film is there's one scene in particular in Duke of Burgundy where their dominance games takes kind of an unpleasant turn that becomes like a little bit abusive, the birthday scene. Yeah, it gets weaponized. That is is just like daintily dipping a toe into the water that Hollywood is like, we're just going to swim in this water. We're not ever going to come up for air. (laughs) It's a profound difference in this film because of the groundwork Strickland lays leading up to that, that it feels like a betrayal so much. 
even though, like you said, it's so it's so quaint by Hollywood's comparison in terms of its depictions of S and M as abuse. Yeah, alas, no ice pick. No Michael Douglas dad jeans either. Just some frumpy pajamas. That velour sweater that he wears. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, Jim, I think I have you to thank for this, because I don't think I saw Duke of Burgundy until you had shown or I saw Library Hours, a film that you did at Cuff. Gosh, how many years ago was that now? At least like three or that more? That was uh, 2018 Cuff. I think it was the 25th anniversary. I could be wrong. Uh, don't hate me, Brian Wendorf, for getting that wrong. And then with 2020, nobody can keep track of any year. So I think yeah, we no all... one knows what year it is. I hadn't seen any of Strickland's stuff. I don't know what it was that it just went past me. I heard a lot of good things about his stuff, but I just never really got into it. There's a little bit of a movement in some circles to do like throwback horror films, and we're going to try to capture the glory of yesteryear, and I've just only seen the bad versions of that. Oh, I hate it. When you tell someone you're doing a throwback, yeah, there is a a justified knee-jerk reaction because the potential for it to be bad is way greater than it to actually be good and sort of, you know, worthwhile in some way for that style to justify why you're choosing that. And so it wasn't until I think last year when we were talking about last year at Marion Bad. Was it last year at Marion Bad? It was. We really have had the sort of year that only Ellen Rob Grier could understand. We are really ghosts of those people we were a year ago. We are. Am I a lesbian? Did I kill someone with an ice pick? Who knows? After we talked about it, I was just like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's do an episode on uh, Duke of Burgundy, and it'll finally give me an excuse to sit down and watch it and watch all of Strickland's stuff. And wow, I feel like I am much better off for it. Yeah, I was just thrilled to see this film. Oh my God, it is shot so lovingly. The music is beautiful. The look of it is just gorgeous. Everything about it is just so well put together. I love the use of the montages that kind of break up the story. And just, yeah, I can't think of anything bad to say about this film. I just have enjoyed it so much. And each time I go back to it, I get more out of it because of the way that it's structured. There seems to be kind of like little things that I notice each time that I watch it. It's such a wonderful world that he has put together for this film. It's such a complete world. I want to, I want to live in this world, though I don't think I would be welcome in it. You could just be one of those mannequins, which I love so much that he did. And this is something that it took me two or three times to notice. But if you've never seen this film before, there are shots in a lecture hall that happen probably two or three times throughout the movie. I think maybe three times. And the world is all women. There are no male characters, which I think also is done in such a subtle way that like that I've heard takes some people a while to notice like, oh, wait, there are no men here. They're not operating in this self-aware like we are this female utopia. I find it so refreshing that he's not the sort of director like he always includes all kinds of 
nods to things and usually pretty subtle references, but he doesn't do any of that thing that you mentioned a little bit ago where it's like, oh, I'm doing this throwback genre movie. And usually when people do that, they wrench their arm out of the socket, patting themselves on the back for how fucking clever they are. And he he never does that. And I think that's why definitely with certain things about In Fabric, which is his most recent film, but also with the all-female world of Duke of Burgundy, it's like he's just so matter-of-fact about it that it's not that kind of annoying, like, here's this different, like you were just saying, like, there's no sense of, like, this world is different because it's all women. It's like, no, women can be terrible to each other, too. Here we are. There's almost this precedent set by postmodern pastiche filmmakers like Tarantino or Wes Anderson, which I think both of those guys are great filmmakers in their own right, but they spawn these copycats that want to rip that off. And then so you get the obnoxious, like self-congratulatory style of filmmaking where they love throwing that in your face, you know, to what degree they're aware of these other cinematic references that they can't wait to show you. I find both of them to be incredibly obnoxious and self-congratulatory. And I think it's so hard to make a movie with that many references, but Duke without it being like that, at least to me. But I think Peter manages to do that, especially in Duke of Burgundy, where if you're familiar with Euro horror and even just with European art films in general, you can see a lot of what he's doing, but he doesn't feel the need to beat you over the head with it. Yeah, he's closer to, um, you know, not that he needs comparison, but he, for me, he's kind of closer to like a Todd Haynes than a Tarantino or a Wes Anderson. Totally. But I think also the Todd Haynes comparison sort of brings me back around to what I said earlier, which is I I feel like the closest comparison that pops into my mind with Duke of Burgundy in particular is Fassbender. And I definitely see a lot of Fassbender in Todd Haynes as well, just in the way that they both do really interesting things with melodrama And they're able to do these stories about relationships that I think a lot of male directors or art house directors would maybe shy away from because it's so easy to have that feel trite or ridiculous. And I just, if I find it very frustrating that people seem to worship certain subgenres but look down on things like melodrama it's like melodrama is where it is it's probably a blessing in disguise though that the broy filmmakers have not latched on to the school of cirque though fair that's a fair point everyone you mentioned huge fans of cirque if if that gets exploited i think we could be in trouble it is unusual that it didn't cross over because when I think of really overwrought melodrama, I tend to think of the heroic bloodshed films. And, you know, you watch a John Woo film like The Killer, oh, yeah. and some of those moments are just like, wow, like this melodrama is really heavy. Oh, absolutely. 
but that didn't necessarily cross over when he and Hark and Lamb and the rest of the the Hong Kong filmmakers or the filmmakers that were influenced by Hong Kong filmmakers. It's like The Matrix doesn't have necessarily that level of melodrama, but it's got the gung fu and all the other kind of craziness that comes from those Hong Kong films that were so inspirational to something like The Matrix or like some of Tarantino's films. But yeah, thank God that melodrama didn't come across with it. I've been revisiting a lot of those like 80s and early 90s Hong Kong movies recently, just for me, it's comfort viewing, and I think everybody is falling back on that in the last year. But it really is so strange that the American reinterpretations of those movies try to take all of the cool, macho, violent shit and leave behind all of the feelings. And there are so many feelings in John Woo movies. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, it's like how everybody loved uh, The Departed. And I was like, have you seen Infernal Affairs? Like, you should fucking watch Infernal Affairs. Because, like, The Departed is like this bloated Scorsese fest, it's you know? Off. I recently rewatched Infernal Affairs. And... The Departed is one of those movies where I actually saw Infernal Affairs first when The Departed came out. So I have a huge problem with Scorsese. He's one of those directors who I love as a person and I love as somebody who preserves film and cares about film and speaks very passionately about it, but I don't necessarily like the films he makes. The Departed came out when I was young enough where I want to say I was like 22 or 23 at the time. And so he was one of those directors where I felt like I was supposed to like his work. But when The Departed came out, I was like, I fucking hate this. And I saw it like three times in the theater because I was trying to understand why I hated it. (laughs) And I think it's exactly what we're talking about now, which is like the way that the sense of feelings and emotional angst and melodrama is misrepresented in it like that fucking sex scene set to comfortably numb it's like what are you doing marky mark's performance that he got an oscar for is his like his worst performance probably second only to that uh m night movie where trees are killing people what no if you go back and watch Infernal Affairs, Tony Lung's character, he doesn't have to thrash around like a dying cow the way Leonardo DiCaprio does, but he gives off, I guess, what Scorsese is trying to evoke with all of the sort of feelings and frustration and the tragedy of his character. And it's like, it's so perfect. How did it go so wrong? Yeah, well, there, there are a couple things I feel about that is i think scorsese i love a lot of his earlier work and i feel like his devotees turn me off to his larger filmography but also i feel like and i say this a lot to people when scorsese comes up is that i don't think he's made a good film since uh cape fear which i think is better than the original it's like one of the few remakes i really love Well, I I also have to wonder if some of that has to do with the way that things like masculinity and 
emotions are depicted because I feel like that wasn't as much of a problem with his early films. And to get back, to get back to Duke of Burgundy, <laughs> um, that's something that it always surprises me when male directors, especially who maybe have a history of making genre movies. And of course, before Duke of Burgundy, like you mentioned, Mike, is Barbarian Sound Studio. And before that is Catalan Varga, which if you haven't seen either of those, Catalan Varga is basically a rape revenge drama. And Barbarian Sound Studio is more or less a giallo movie. So it's like to go from those genre films to this, I get why maybe reviewers were confused about how to process like, okay, this is really just a melodrama about a relationship. But it always blows me away when directors are able to shift gears like that, especially male directors, and tell these stories that don't that that feel very authentic, and that don't kind of dip into that fantasy territory. And, And I don't mean fantasy like like Lord of the Rings. I mean, fantasy, like the way that Tarantino dips into that sort of macho fantasy nonsense. The way Tarantino does it is definitely more of a comic book. And this is more of like fantastical pastoral type, you know, novel by comparison. It does have elements of like, going back to that Eurocult reference, there's this French subgenre, for lack of a better word, called the Fantastique, which basically represents films and literature, and probably you could put visual art in here as well, that sort of straddle this kind of boundary between conventional drama and things like fantasy and horror and sci fi, where there are these sort of nebulous elements going on and you don't quite know, is this the natural world or a supernatural world? He does that so well in Duke of Burgundy, especially with some of those shots that Mike was talking about earlier, just shots of the insects and the dream sequences. It's so seamless. Not even the imagery, but the sound design is incredible. I mean, it's incredible in all his films. It's definitely one of his filmmaker predilections, but he's just so good at utilizing it. I want to talk about the way that things are structured and the way that you find out information in this film, which I really, really like that you talk, Jim, about his predilections. And one of Strickland's other things is gorgeous title sequences. And this movie is definitely no exception. The title sequence for this is fucking fantastic. This bike ride that we have Evelyn on as she's going to Cynthia's place. And I love the way that we see things play out, let's say, the first time. We're going to see something play out many, many times in this film, and we are never bored with seeing how it plays out, because each time it's slightly different. And the first time that it plays out, coming into this movie the first time, you have no idea what's going on. Evelyn shows up at this place. She is greeted at the door by this other woman, Cynthia, and shown inside, and immediately this other woman, Cynthia, is just picking on her. Did I say you could sit? You can start by cleaning the study. And don't take all day this time. 
and just really is berating her and then wants her to hand wash her underwear and comes out and like, you missed this one. And then pretty soon there is stuff that happens behind closed doors. And it sounds like there's piss play going on. It's just like, what the hell is happening again with his incredible sound design? Like you don't, you don't even need to see it. You know exactly what's going on just by the way it sounds. One of the other sounds that we get throughout this whole thing is, well, the flapping of, of insects, and we'll talk about the insects, the butterflies, but the typewriter. We have the typewriter that happens quite a bit, and just how that kind of punctuates things. And Sammy brought up uh, Fassbender, and last week we talked about the bitter tears of Petra von Kant, and so having that typewriter noise, which is like Marlena's only voice in the film, I'm pretty sure that that was kind of a throwback to that as well. Nice and subtle and not that I'm going to break my arm by patting my back kind of thing like you're also saying. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get the second time it happens and we see it from more Cynthia's point of view. I find it very interesting that we are on the other side of the door when it happens. And, And we do learn in between those two things that this is an act, that there is play going on here. And I just, I love that the second time we get it much more from Cynthia and that we see all of the things that she has to do to be able to prepare for what is about to happen. And it's very, very actorly to me. She has to wear a particular costume. She has to wear a wig. She has lines to memorize. The water. She, the water. She has to keep drinking this lots like and lots and lots of water. Prep. Yeah. She has all of these things she has to do. And much like any actress, she is being looked at. And there's this whole angle of voyeurism that goes on in here where she knows she's being looked at. And she actually has, there's, I noticed yesterday that she has marks on the floor. There are taped marks that she goes up back and forth. Oh, I love it. The subtlety is incredible, especially because as a viewer, you might question whether or not it's the same incident shown from two different POVs. But there are like these cues that let you know that it's actually like a continuing role play. And one of those cues is that um, the cat sitting on the couch is facing a different direction. And that's like that's one of the only discernible cues for you to know that it's like the same role play occurring on two different days, which I think is so fantastic. As it repeats throughout the film, it becomes such a different scene. And if I had to pick one favorite thing about Duke of Burgundy, it might be that we don't have this script that's all over the place trying to murder us with exposition and show us all these different things. It's so simple, but so effective in that simplicity. And also it just is so heartbreaking. It's almost like the more you watch it, you get more and more out of it. Definitely the first time I watched it, I had heard it was about this lesbian S&M relationship. And so I went in with all these expectations, which is, you know, unfortunately, normally what you get from this sort of movie where there's this whole fantasy element and maybe some exploitation and maybe this cruel Dom character, but it's totally turned on its head because 
Evelyn, even though she's the younger partner and she's the submissive partner, she's really controlling everything. The first time I saw this, I really hated Evelyn because she just seems she's so spoiled. Oh, she's super obnoxious. Yeah. And is just a bad partner and does things that I think are kind of borderline emotionally abusive. It just doesn't care about what Cynthia wants or needs or how Cynthia feels about things. The only thing that Evelyn seems to care about is having her fantasies acted out. She doesn't necessarily know Cynthia. It's just Cynthia kind of fits the bill in a, in a certain sense. But the more that I watched it, I started to also have issues with Cynthia because it's like, she's clearly the older partner, but she's so passive aggressive. This would be a whole different movie if she just said, hey, here are my limits. You're crossing them. I can't do this every day. I also have needs. But it's like, she doesn't do that. Instead, she she just like reaches her breaking point and then gets revenge. That's also what's so universal and nuanced about the way that Strickland has created these characters is they're so relatable because that's kind of what's frustrating in any relationship where one person is kind of doing the micromanaging and the other person could just say something, but instead like it manifests passive aggressively. And then like, you know, that's how conflict and arguments usually or can often erupt, but he's showing it in such a specific, such a niche way where we have this dominant bottom who is kind of encroaching on this submissive tops role, essentially. And then rather than being vocal about it, Cynthia weaponizes it in a scene like the birthday scene where she fucks up Evelyn's birthday by forcing her to do this sort of unscripted role play, or at least we think it's unscripted. Definitely the, the impression is that it's unscripted. For some reason, this time around watching it, I thought about what it would be like if Evelyn was played by a male character, like how enraged you would be when she, because if you haven't seen the film, There are certain scenes where Cynthia is clearly frustrated with or a little tired of having to always put on these kind of like rigorous costumes that involve pantyhose and corsets and lingerie and this wig. And she has to like, it's almost like she can never be comfortable and she always has to be this sort of elegant femdom type. Yeah, when she puts on pajamas, Evelyn wants nothing to do with her and won't do anything for her when she's in those pajamas. You can imagine if the movie was made today with a male Evelyn, there are plenty of people who would be outraged if Evelyn said to Cynthia, she basically tells her that I don't think she tells her she looks fat, but she more or less tells her that she looks like a hobo and she she won't like like you said she doesn't even want to touch her when she's wearing these pajamas and it's funny because if you listen to the commentary peter talks about how 
the, those pajamas were probably the, one of like the most expensive things <laughs> in the wardrobe. So it's like they're kind of baggy, but they're nice pajamas. It's not like she's wearing sweatpants with holes in them. They almost look like nicer men's pajamas. Don't worry about you pajamas, senor. I'll take care of them. So the fact that Evelyn has made such a huge deal out of her partner wanting to be comfortable at bedtime, it's like, what is wrong with you? Oh, yeah, it's a reminder of the level of performance, which in and of itself is a metaphor for relationships and how performative they could be. Evelyn is always on Cynthia about you need to improvise better, have more conviction in your voice. And just the one scene where Cynthia is masturbating Evelyn and is just struggling to find things to say to get her partner off. You just feel for her. You can see that frustration on her face and just that, what am I going to say to get her off? What what can I do? And Evelyn is not helping and just always on her, just like, well, start from the beginning. Say it better. And then after she comes, she's just like, well, you need to have more conviction. It's like... It's so rude. Yeah. She just is such a... Yeah. She tops from the bottom all the it's time. It's really upsetting. <laughs> Also, I didn't notice until watching it this time around, there are scenes where Evelyn goes down on Cynthia, but Cynthia is always in the costume. <laughs> it's like... Yep, she can't be comfortable even then. It is frustrating. And yeah, even though we're talking about this lesbian BDSM relationship, it is so relatable. You get all of this, it, no matter what type of relationship you're in, you can empathize with certain aspects of this. The idea of how important your partner's birthday is and how much the birthday plays into this, this whole idea of Cynthia wants to get this really nice present for Evelyn and what she wants won't come in time. So there's just that whole like dealing with the disappointment and just how much gets pinned on your partner's birthday. And then, yeah, the, the birthday scene itself when Cynthia's like, Oh yeah, here's your, here's your cake. And it's just all <laughs> the ingredients. That's so good. Their own brand of infidelity, right? Where Evelyn polishes someone else's boots is so funny, but it's also like that's relatable so sad. to anybody. Yeah. Why did you talk to with that person at the party so much? Why didn't you come over and talk with me? We all have those moments of panic, of of not feeling confident and just like being undermined by your partner. And it's just, yeah, it's it's all there no matter what type of relationship you're in. That's probably my favorite thing about this movie in particular is I feel like so many movies about sadomasochistic relationships often present it as this totally foreign world. And usually there's like a fish out of water character who is initiated into this world and has to learn about all the different rules and blah, blah, blah. What are butt plugs? Duke of Burgundy takes the opposite approach and everything feels really... It's like, like you said, that first scene, we don't know what the hell is going on. But once you pass that first scene and you sort of get the gist of, okay, it's this game 
and this kind of sexualized ritual that they're going through. But it's so familiar. That's what makes the film so incredible is that it doesn't make S&M this fetishized thing, you know, pun intended, but, but it makes it really just a symbol for normal relationship frustration. What's wonderful about that on top of what you just said is that the film is set in this society where it doesn't seem weird either. Like you have someone who can't make the bondage bed in time because she's essentially backordered on bondage beds. That scene is so funny. I love that scene. <laughs> and instead, you know, she offers the human toilet as a consolation. Fatima, who plays that role of the carpenter or whatever the hell the character is called, I think she's in every single one of his movies and she has the best face acting where she doesn't even have to say anything. She just has such expressive eyes. Like when she, when she starts talking about the human toilet, her, uh, it's, it might be my favorite scene. And I just love that. That's, you know, he, he, he puts her in, in fabric in a larger role because I, I wanted so much, I wanted so much more of her in Duke. My biggest regret is that we are sticking with Cynthia in that scene and that she leaves and we get to see Fatima doing like the hand gestures. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'm like, no, no, tell me more about the human toilet. I want to know how it works. There's so many of those shots. Every fucking review I read about the movie had to bring up the human toilet and everyone was just like scandalized by the idea of a human toilet. I was like, okay, I guess we run in different circles. They're scandalized in spite of the fact that she gets piss in her mouth, like in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Right. And there's a lot more piss play definitely inferred with all that water that's being drank. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so childish. Calvinism is to blame for, <laughs> for that reaction. But it, it's like, really, if you're watching a movie that's about the frustrations in an adult relationship surely you can process the film as an adult and not have a tantrum over the fact that, yes, there are people in the world who engage in piss play and human toilets. It's like, come on. It's almost erectile dysfunction at one point because there's supposed to be piss play and Cynthia can't do it. And so you hear Evelyn so frustrated and like, well, run the water and yeah, <laughs> get her to do it. Yeah, exactly. There's also a really heartbreaking scene where Evelyn wants Cynthia to go through the routine and Cynthia can't bring herself to do it. And you can see how upset she is. And at no point does Evelyn say, maybe we should stop until Cynthia starts to cry. It's like this time around, I don't know why, but this time around, I just thought about like, okay, what if you put a heterosexual couple in these roles and made this a like non S&M, totally heteronormative sex scene and the male partner waited for the female partner to start crying before saying stop, I think it would seem even more horrendous than it does now. And it just, it's so, like, you just really want to punch Evelyn in the face. It, that, that part is, is really heartbreaking. 
And it's so well performed uh, by both of them, especially Sidza. Yeah, she's such an incredible. I mean, they're both great actresses, but Sidza does these very subtle facial expressions where you know, like, she's really good in this movie at doing that kind of exhausted, I'm doing this because I have to, but I don't want to face. <laughs> oh, yeah. And not not really having a safe word of her own to invoke. And that's, you know, what it leads to. It's sort of the culmination of that, all the weight she's bearing. One thing I should have asked Ricklin about that I did not, and I regret it, is how he shot those scenes. Because I imagine kind of, you know, being a, a on the periphery of filmmaking, that you would shoot all those scenes of her coming in with the panties that were missed. You would just shoot them all one after another after another. Like, okay, this is scenario one. Now let's do it. Now scenario two. Okay, now let's do it. Now we're, we're jumping to, to scene 79, and here, here we're going to do it again. And I can just imagine... That being like towards the end of the day and just being like, okay, we've done the scene, like literally have done the scene from the movie, you know, 15 times, 15 different ways or more. Now let's do the one where Cynthia breaks down. I'm just so curious if that's how they shot that. And I, I know I would probably do that if I were the filmmaker and just make that like, okay, now you're more tired. Now you're more tired and just play with how people actually work and make that the final part of the day when your actress has to break down. That's very Stanley Kubrick of you, which I am not saying as a compliment. (laughs) When you're talking about relationships, for whatever reason, Eyes Wide Shut actually jumped into my mind, which doesn't happen very often. But I think it was the scene, the scene that just makes me cringe every single time when they are watching one of those lectures and we haven't even talked about butterflies yet but they're watching one of the lectures and evelyn Ah. tries to show off and tries to almost humiliate the person that's behind the lectern and she ends up being humiliated oh my god doesn't make my skin crawl and watching cynthia's face during that oh i just i feel for her Cynthia wants to set her on fire. (laughs) Which is also such a funny play on the role play humiliation versus like real life humiliation. If you've ever been to a a film screening with a Q&A, there's always that fucking person in the audience who's like, well, actually... If you were trying to reference blah, 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 you really, and it's like, there's always somebody trying to do that bullshit. So I have to assume that he was pretty much making himself laugh with that. But I do really like those touches where you do see that there, there are times where Evelyn feels insecure in the relationship too. And it's not just Cynthia and Evelyn feels maybe less intelligent or less educated or something and is trying to impress Cynthia, but she just goes about it in the worst ways. Which I think also is a commonality with, uh, you know, quote unquote, May, December relationships. Oh, yeah. As well, which is such a interesting observation and the way he brought that into this dynamic. So perfect. 
I'm just trying to complete an education I started on you five years ago. I'm not your pupil. I was, but I'm not. When you leave the nest, I just want you to be ready to face the real world. I almost thought you said made December because the made play also gets into it oh, as yeah, well. Oh yeah, the Jean Genet. And the one thing that I find interesting, and and I almost wish that I hadn't read it, is I didn't watch the deleted scenes for this, but apparently there's a deleted scene where you find out that Evelyn is actually the owner of the house, and that it is not Cynthia's, which then throws a whole level of classism even more onto that, because we already have the mistress-slash-maid play going on, but to know that Evelyn is the one who's economically more stable, that it's it's her place rather than Cynthia's, and Cynthia's, I don't want to use the word interloper, but she's the one that's living there, that also puts a thing on it. And again, it speaks to everybody's relationships. There's always that weird power dynamic. Who's ti- whose name is on the title of the house? Who was living there first? Do you get the, do you, do you have two places and one person moves to another place or do you just both move into a new place? And how is the financial situation set up for that? Because that's another area of potential humiliation is one person that makes more money than the other person or one person who in this case has a much better butterfly collection than the other person and if evelyn was the one that owned the house that would change the context of the the human toilet scene slash bondage bed scene because one of the few times she speaks up in a way that doesn't feel part of the role play because she asks Evelyn to not make any purchases without her. Leaving that scene about the house out was for the best because it makes it much more nebulous. There is that scene, I want to say it's probably like around the beginning of the third act, if we could call it that, like towards the end of the film, where Evelyn says to Cynthia, like, I bought you a whole new wardrobe. And the way she phrases it is so specific. It's like, okay, did you buy it with your own money? Did you buy it with Cynthia's money? Like, it also seems so weird to think that the submissive partner would go through this exchange where they're actually buying the clothes for the dominant partner. Like, the whole thing is just a mess. It's so Pygmalion as far as remaking your partner in the image that you want her to be. That's another thing that resonates so much with me, with with this movie is, and and I think we've all probably been in this type of relationship at some point, but it's so frustrating to be in the sort of relationship where there are definitely things that your partner likes about you, but they're much more interested in trying to sort of fit you into a fantasy than they are into actually getting to know what it is that you like and dislike. And that's totally what's going on here. Because It's so clear that while Cynthia does want to please Evelyn, it's like she doesn't seem to have an actual interest in dominating anyone. Evelyn has no empathy for Cynthia when she hurts her back. She hurts her back when she's trying (laughs) trying to move this huge crate box, whatever you want to call it, into their bedroom so that Evelyn can sleep in there at night. And, you know, we keep saying that Evelyn is the submissive person. We really have to address the whole idea of the safe word because there's this weird thing in BDSM relationships where 
even though the submissive is the submissive, they still kind of have all the power because they have the safe word. And the safe word is supposed to immediately stop the session right then and there. And that's it. You know, no questions asked, no hard feelings, just, you know, I'm going to say the safe word and then we're done. And that happens so many times, especially when she's in that bed and she is so controlling. Oh my God. With the finger snapping. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I hate that. And I hate when she's just like, poor Cynthia is trying to sleep and Evelyn's in that box going Pinastri. which is yeah. funny because it's almost the equivalent of the pajamas because like she has to be pulled out of there because she gets a mosquito bite which i find so funny as well yeah she she really is such a baby <laughs> we mentioned this before that's the violation of trust in the relationship is when cynthia ignores the safe word when it is said at that birthday that she cannot handle Cynthia eating that cake in front of her and starts using that safe word and, in her pajamas. <laughs> yeah, and she, yeah, exactly. I love that too. Just such a power play, and it's just like, nope, I don't care. You said your safe word. Fuck you. I'm not going to pay attention. And that is a major violation of a BDSM relationship. It is, but to play devil's advocate for a second, Jim sent us this really great article about two women who I think are film critics having a discussion about what it was like to watch this movie as, as, as queer women. And I think they loved the film and they like us were very impressed with the way that it deals with actual relationships and these issues that feel so realistic, but they were horrified by the birthday scene and they felt like it constituted an, a, an abusive moment in a relationship. And I never really thought about it that way until I read their take on it because Cynthia sits down in this chair in her pajamas that Evelyn hates, takes this birthday cake that she forced Evelyn to bake on her own birthday. <laughs> and I shouldn't be laughing, but it is funny. <laughs> it's so good. It's fictional. So you have, it's, you know, it's very amusing in that regard. Well, and I think there are definitely moments that are meant to be funny. And one of my favorite things about his films in general, and you see this especially in in Fabric, is there are moments where things are hilarious in a really dark way and often in a really subtle way. But it's not like she ties Evelyn up and beats her. Evelyn lays on the ground. She's not tied down. And Cynthia puts a foot over her mouth. Like she doesn't press hard. She basically barely touches her and makes her lay there while she sits in this chair and eats the cake. Evelyn says her safe word, which is pinastri, which is this, uh, it's the name of a moth. And people just cheered loudly outside. Yeah. They must be very excited about this birthday cake, but they do love pinastri. <laughs> that would be great if that's what they were cheering for. Evelyn could sit up and walk away if she wanted to, I guess is my point. So like, yes, while it is cruel, I guess I just didn't feel like it constituted abuse because this is the first time we're seeing it happen. And there's no, it's like she could literally just get up and walk away. 
Well, I also feel like it's another one of those universally relatable relationship things where it just gets really petty. Yes. And that's the that's how that's depicted in that relationship with those dynamics is that she ignores it in that way. And you're right. Evelyn could just get up and just call it off. But instead, you know, you see like that that teardrop form because she just like is hurt by it. My initial impression of her crying was that she's this spoiled brat and she's upset, not necessarily because Cynthia has hurt her, but she's upset because this rigorous fantasy that she clings to is being ruined in some way. It's her scene that she wants Cynthia to play out over and over again, where Cynthia dominates her. She's getting what she wants in a certain sense because it's not scripted and it is genuine domination, but it's also the opposite of what she wants because Cynthia is eating cake and wearing pajamas, (laughs) which just is so funny. (laughs) I want to talk about that dream sequence that goes on, and I I like that you don't necessarily know exactly where it begins or ends because at first I thought it began and ended with that very slow, deliberate zoom in on Cynthia's crotch, which is a wonderful thing going like into this deep, dark, unknown territory. And then it becomes this dream sequence. And then we pull out and I thought, okay, the dream is over, but I think it still goes on a little bit from there. And I love this dream sequence and especially the butterfly motif that runs through it and that it becomes like Stan Brackage's moth light for a little while. I, and again, you were talking about the audio and this is the audio and the video working so well together. And it is just gorgeous. These butterfly wings and just the detail that we get as it just goes past the camera so fast. And you can hear kind of the, the breaking of the soundtrack by the, the, the wings. It is, it, it well, it's such a nice, callback again subtle callback i don't think too many people are like oh yeah of course i watch stan brackage films but it's just like i was like oh this is really nice that he's doing this and that it plays with the butterfly theme so well it's also so anxiety inducing which i don't think moth light is at all moth light you just get lost in this beautiful texture here it's like moth light through the lens of like Fassbender queer relationship breakdown. Which is funny, too, because I I like how Strickland is so outspoken about his belief that Brackage would hate that reference. (laughs) Yes. Because of how counter it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's also completely CGI, which I think is, you know, part of his his uh, concern in that in that argument. Oh, yeah. But it's still gorgeous. Oh, it's great. Also, it I love the way it links to the that one scene where they're both in the study or the library or wherever they are. And Cynthia is, I don't think we fully have said this, but Cynthia is basically a lepidopterist of some kind, or at least an amateur entomologist and has written this paper on a certain type of cricket and they have this really great collection. And it seems like Evelyn is interested, but nowhere near on the same level as Cynthia. And so there's this scene where 
Cynthia is in her pajamas, in the, in the much maligned pajamas, taking notes on a new paper, and she's listening to a recording that's driving Evelyn crazy. And the sound in the dream sequence kind of reminds me of that recording. And, and Evelyn even says to her, you know, that sound is upsetting me. And Cynthia's like, okay, and doesn't turn it off. And Evelyn is just like outraged. Like you're, you're not going to turn it off. I said, I didn't like it. And it's like, go in the other room if you don't like it. The perception is that, that she's working and her work is simply like an annoyance to Evelyn. And that sort of begs this larger question about the nature of their relationship as well. And if it's one that's sort of like academic where Cynthia is the professor and Evelyn is like this, you know, far less season, far less seasoned student, um, which is another interesting sort of dynamic to potentially project onto these two people whom we know very little about, even though we're with them the whole time. It also definitely is a scene that triggers me a little bit because I've dated a number of people who were like, why are you working all the time? This work is annoying me. Please stop doing it. And it's, that basically is their dynamic in that scene. Right. It's like you're, you're here to entertain me. Yes. Pay attention to me, not to your work. There's so much great passive aggressive stuff in this movie. And I think in that scene, there's one where it's she says something like well you didn't ask me to turn it off or something and it, it's just like yeah she says did you ask me to turn it off after evelyn's like you're not going to turn it off <laughs> did you ask me to and it's like oh how many times have i had conversations like this <laughs> and also the line that they keep repeating which this is also one of those movies where and i've had i think more and more conversations like this recently for whatever reason. But I think there are movies that if you watch them when you're very young and you haven't, especially relationship movies, if you haven't had a lot of relationship experience, the movie either resonates in a different way or maybe doesn't resonate with you much at all. But then once you've been through some shit and <laughs> you watch movies like this, you're like, oh God, this is too realistic. But there are a number of scenes where they kind of both say to each other, I wish you would do this thing without me having to ask you. <laughs> it's like, why do humans have so much trouble asking their partners for what they want? Like, why do we expect people to read our minds? We all do it. You don't sound enthusiastic. It says to be cold. Yes, but not now. Oh. And one thing I forgot to write. Don't talk about it. Just surprise me. I know, I know. Well, you were a bit slow to surprise me last time. Well, it's not a surprise if you're expecting it, is it? I know, but what I mean by surprise is within 24 hours. But not in the first hour, because that wouldn't be a surprise. Okay, okay. And not in the last hour either. I'm just all frustrated by then. So within 22 hours then. And she looks so angry. <laughs> Which, that's not a surprise at all. If you say to someone, I want you to surprise me, but it has to be within a day, that's not a surprise. I've brought this up several times. Obviously, we do check timber every single year, and I don't know what it is. So, I, I If somebody hasn't done this, I think I'm going to have to need, need to do this. There's something 
with Czech films and butterflies. Like I remember in like daisies, there's a butterfly collector, there's butterflies in Valerie in a week of wonders. There's butterflies in all my good countrymen. And I did find it very interesting that one of the films we've brought up Fassbender quite a few times, Brackage, etc. But I was so happy to hear that Strickland said that he was very influenced by Morgiana, that, that oh, Uri yeah. Hertz uh, influenced this. And it it really makes sense if you've seen both films. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. It doesn't necessarily have that same look to it. The you know, I think Morgiana is much more uh, colorful, much more explosive. I like this mu- more muted color palette that he's dealing with uh, in um, Duke of Burgundy. Again, that melodrama, the um, just, just that world seems like it's a very similar world to me. Definitely. And I, I love that. And not just in this movie, but in general, when movies have this kind of gothic visual look without really having the subject matter or without kind of having that specific genre focus, I, that's one of my favorite sort of random looks who is that female european filmmaker who may or may not still be dating gaspar noe lucille hadzilovich she did evolution and uh that really incredible vatikind adaptation and that reminded me of her previous film uh innocence is that the one you're yeah, Innocence is the Vedakind adaptation. And it has that, that similar vibe that you just talked about, that very specific vibe where it's not necessarily like of that period, but it's sort of like using this setting as a device without spoiling it is kind of essentially like revealed towards the end that it is just kind of like more of a device than anything, if I remember it correctly anyway. She's one of my favorite working filmmakers, but I would say that both she and Peter Strickland have a similar way of referencing films from the 60s and 70s, but making it totally their own and also having these kind of literary references. Like he talks a lot about how Viridiana and Bunuel kind of shows up in Duke of Burgundy, which I could totally see. But again, he doesn't beat you over the head with it. We've talked around this, this whole idea, you know, we've said that this is a city or a country or a world. We don't know how far this extends, but wherever this place is, all women. I also love this whole idea of, you know, the lepidoptery being like the main commerce in town, this whole thing of like everybody going to the library and studying again, this is like my ideal world, right? Going yeah, into the, like, Oh, and they try and use it as a currency at one point to like, uh, quicken the, uh, the production of the, of the bed. This is like Nabokov's dream world, except they're not all under the age of 20. Do they have electricity in this world? Because there's a lot of candles. They don't seem to. And they, I have no automobiles as far as I know either. It's all bicycles. Again, this is like my perfect world. You don't know if those chandeliers in the uh, presentation hall are electric or not either. With that, with that very Marion bad tracking shot, by the way. 
Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, I know, I know he's a big fan of, of Marion Bod. The thing that I'm always curious about is why does the library close for the winter? It's just such a nice touch where you're like, well, why? Is it treacherous because they don't have the infrastructure of like electrical plowing and that kind of stuff? Because they or ride bicy- they bicycles feet. around. Those little touches that make it feel a little bit like a fairy tale or a fantasy film, but that he never bothers to explain. I just love. I want to get your guys' take on the ending as well, because when I was watching it again last night, I had a thought. I'll alert the media. And it could just be one of those stupid thoughts. This could be one of those moments of the podcast where I just say something inciting and see what kind of reactions I get. At the end of the movie, we are doing the scenario again. And we are pretty much right back to the beginning of the movie. It's almost cyclical. It is Cynthia on one side of the door, Evelyn on the other side of the door. But then I wondered to myself if it's actually the same door. Is this one of those Silence of the Lambs moments where Evelyn's knocking on a door that Cynthia isn't behind. Have they moved on? Because it feels like their relationship is so strained at one point, that moment when she breaks down and is crying. They do make love afterwards. It seems like they come to an understanding, but it just feels weird that they would go back to the same game again. Like, did they take a break and now they're okay going back to it? I was just curious if you guys think that Evelyn's actually knocking on Cynthia's door. When they have that sort of crisis moment where Cynthia is crying and Evelyn says, you know what, I don't need these things. It's just a luxury. You don't have to do this anymore. To me, it felt like such a familiar bad relationship moment where the needy, demanding asshole partner realizes they're going to lose the person who's been paying them all this attention. And they're like, no, 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 no. it's going to be different now. And I think... Yeah, the uh, the I can change verse, for sure. That's totally what it is, is Evelyn is like, I can change. I won't make you do this all the time anymore. And then you see the scene where, in fact, we're going back to exactly what the problematic behavior was. And so to me, it sort of felt like a nod to the fact that often people stay in these bad relationships because they're hopeful that something will change. They're afraid to lose their partner. But like things don't really change once you're in that cycle. There's an implied codependency, potentially. That's something that he sort of layers throughout the film is this idea that the relationship has really gotten out of hand and Cynthia is not making it any better for herself. And so my assumption at the end is either that it's just going to repeat again or that maybe this time Cynthia is just not going to answer that fucking door. I like that. It leaves us in suspense a little bit with that. Yeah. Because she's there looking at herself. She's got the wig on adjusting it. It's that whole, like, you know, you almost expect uh, all that jazz. It's showtime folks. You know, like she's getting ready and we hear the, the knock at the door, the doorbell ringing. And yeah, I am very curious. Is she going to make her way to the door or not? It's a really well-earned open end, for sure. Yes, and that is what I appreciate about it so much, is that open quality. It's 
sometimes to me, movies where there's a problematic relationship and then the movie's like, okay, but actually here's this one thing that we discussed and now everything's going to be fine. Set off the confetti cannon. And you're like, okay, this, this doesn't feel realistic. But it's also, he's not giving into that temptation to show either queer relationships or sadomasochistic relationships. It's like, it's not necessarily doomed to failure either. And so I appreciate so much, almost more for political reasons, the fact that it's open-ended and that we don't really know. Right. He's neither pandering nor playing into this... um really tired trope of a queer relationship having to end in tragedy. Yeah, but also, I don't know, I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember what it's called, but there was a Christmas movie that came out this past December with Kristen Stewart. It's like the happiest season or something like that. It is so enraging. So I I have this really horrible guilty pleasure, and I don't actually believe in guilty pleasures at all. Like, I think if you like a thing, you like it. But I love watching bad Christmas movies, and I do it every December and have no shame about it. And well, so- Strickland, Strickland, sorry to cut you off. He he also doesn't believe in guilty pleasures. He calls them comfort films. Yes, exactly. So that, that does definitely sound like your comfort film or like one genre They produce so many of these damn things that every year I always have a couple to watch. And so I figured, okay, here's this one that's about these two lesbian characters. Like, how bad can it be? It turns out awful. It's like, it's a similar, it would actually be an interesting double feature with Duke of Burgundy, where it's like, here's one movie that shows a complicated relationship in a realistic way. And here's another movie that shows a complicated and actually kind of abusive relationship in a totally fake optimistic way where it's like Kristen Stewart's character is living with and has proposed to her girlfriend and goes home with her girlfriend for Christmas and everything that happens is horrible. It's like the girlfriend's parents don't know she's gay they think that Kristen Stewart is this roommate and it, it's it's sort of like her girlfriend is really unsupportive, makes her feel unappreciated, basically does every awful thing you can think of. And then at the end of the movie, it's like there's one tearful coming out conversation and then all of a sudden everything's fine. And the fact that the movie ends with everything being fine, you're like, no, this is so much worse than if they had a dramatic breakup. Like, God. <laughs> well, a good a good answer film to that might be that uh, that movie Inside from 2007, that that French film with Alison Paradis and Beatrice Dahl. The one where the woman's pregnant, she's being yeah, chased by yeah. the psycho. Uh, it might be, it might uh, be a good, might be a good palate cleanser for what what happy happiest season sounds like. Yes, that and Knife Plus Heart, which I haven't haven't seen yet. Oh my god, it's so good. So Knife Plus Heart is basically, and and the only reason I bring it up in the context of Duke of Burgundy is. I think that's what a lot of people were expecting Duke of Burgundy to be like when they heard what the references were, because it's definitely a Euro horror movie. It 
is all about kind of queer pornography and S&M, but it's it's a horror movie. Yeah, it's been on my been on my list for a while. It's great and is highly recommended, but is the total opposite film to something like Duke of Burgundy. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with director Peter Strickland, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Dusty McGowan's latest book, The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, is available now in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Mental illness, isolation, and death? Now. That's my idea of a good time. Does the devil himself spend his off hours in dive bars? Where do Egyptian mummies go when they just can't seem to pass away? These and many other important questions are answered in this collection of stories that blend magic, realism, and dark comedy. The Devil is Alive and Well, the auteur's cut, may be found on Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and all fine booksellers. I am so curious about you and your career, and I'm, I'm especially curious how you decided to become a filmmaker. I, I guess because I wasn't very good at speaking. <laughs> I was quite a shy, awkward person, and I always felt more confident when I wrote than I than yeah, I could express myself better. To this day, I haven't been great at speaking. You know, I'm not terrible, but I, I just. You know, I stutter sometimes, and I just can't find the words. So, yeah, I felt I felt empowered when I, when I wrote, and I kind of 
I felt that from quite a young age, but it wasn't until I was 16 when I realized this is what I really feel compelled to do, really. I saw a razor head at the Scala Cinema in London, and I didn't understand it at all, but it's really um, that type of filmmaking is, is what really fascinated me, and this very expressive use of sound and dreamlike quality, that was, yeah, definitely something I wanted to pursue. So once you figured out that this was something that you wanted to pursue, what were your next steps? Well, I wrote scripts, really, like short films. That This this was in 1990. It took seven years until I wrote a feature film. So up, in, up until 1997, it was short scripts. I bought a Super 8 camera, which um, was very cheap back then. It was like 15 pounds. But everything I wrote, was had this kind of Oedipal connection to Eraserhead. I just couldn't shake off that influence. And even if I wanted to, I think if I show it to friends, it always uh, ripping off Eraserhead. So it, it took a long time to, to lose that Lynch connection. But yeah, I, I did some super eight stuff. For, uh, the, the, the funny thing is, you know, back then in Reading, which is like this suburban town, it's very hard to see a lot of the films that I read about. I remember buying a book on called Light Moving in Time by William C. Weiss, and it had people like Brackage, Kenneth Anger, Jordan Belson. I forgot to mention Danny Peary. That was the book that got me into this kind of film. Cult movies, and I got, well, I've got the first volume, then I bought the, the other two, but that really changed my life, That book, those books. Um, even seeing the image of Hollywood Lawn from Trash in that book, and I think even the smell of, of the pages... It just reminds me so much of being 16 and that sense of wonder, <laughs> the sense of what is out there. You couldn't see most of those films. You had to just imagine what they were like. I remember buying Midnight Movies, the Rosenbaum Hobeman book, El Topo. You just could not see that film back then. So it was kind of interesting that you just had this anticipation of what films would be like. And it really kind of, it was like a kind of warm up in, in, in a sense that you read about something and just make your own version of it in, 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 in your head. I eventually moved from Super 8 up to 16mm, and I did a film with Hollywood Lawn and Nick's Dead in New York. This was 1994, I went there. And it's really interesting, because I, I didn't know anyone. And there was this documentary on the Lou Reed song, Walk on the Wild Side, which I, I never really liked that song, but it had all the characters I loved from Paul Morrissey films. And I had this British Film Institute handbook, which anyone could buy. It had the production company's number in there, and I called them. He gave me the the director's number. He was James Marsh. Um, He's obviously a feature film director now. He gave me Holly's agent's number, and I sent a script, and she accepted. I had an aunt in Queens in New York, in Woodhaven. I stayed with her, and I remember getting the phone book, and I called the New York Filmmakers Co-op. I met M.M. Sarah, who introduced me to Johannes Schoenher, who introduced me to Todd Phillips, who was running the New York Underground Film Festival then, who got me in touch with Richard Kern, who got me in touch with Nick Zed. So it just kind of happened like that. It's kind of strange that I was a complete outsider, but you could meet those people quite quickly, really. I think as long as you were honest and kind of enthusiastic. You're, I think, one year and two months younger than me, and I was in New York right around the time that you were probably making this film. So it's, I'm surprised that our paths actually didn't cross. 
you know, it's funny. There was a, a magazine I used to buy. I think I bought it from Kim's. It was called Gutter Trash by a Mike Black, not a Mike White. But that had, you know, that was, I think Nick Zed was featured quite heavily in that. But yeah, I mean, that was an amazing time. A lot of films at Kim's I couldn't see in Britain. You know, all the Kern, Zed stuff. I had, there was like a Japanese version of it, El Topper, with all the genitals pixelated. But I remember the record stores there, you know, like Adult Crash on, in Alphabet City. Um, other music opened a little bit later. I think Two Boots Pizza had, I think they were renting DV, not DVDs, sorry, VHS tapes at that, at that time. Yeah, it was kind of weird for me just being this suburban middle class kid and spending time with Nick Zed. We shot this film at the Millennium Cinema. I think it's East 4th Street. I think it's gone now. But we shot it in the, in the toilets of, of that cinema. And that film, you know, I'm not really proud of that film. It, I, that was kind of like my film school. I made many mistakes. But I think because it had Holly and Nick, it got around quite a lot. So I'm pretty sure the New York Film, New York Underground Film Festival showed it. I think Ed Holter was, was running it then after Todd Phillips left. But, you know, I think socially that was very important as well. I met people like Tessa Hughes Freeland, who I'm still in touch with. There was this, a group of people that I could actually talk to about film. It didn't really change my career in any sense. There was like another 13 years until I actually released my first feature film. But at least there was this, I had a social life. <laughs> I first went in 1994 to just find people, find locations. But I went back a year later in 1995 to shoot it. And then it did the festivals a year after that. Because again, even that was quite a long gap because after shooting it, I had to save up money to do the editing. And again, back then, you couldn't just do it on an Avid. We would hire this, I think it was the, yeah, it was the London Filmmakers Co-op and it was a, they had a six plate Steenbeck you, you could hire and it was just a long edit. It was like six weeks for a short film because again, it's just much more time consuming to edit on a Steenbeck. That was what, 95, 96? Uh, I want to say that the year on the film Bubblegum is 96. Uh, what happens after that? It was a long gap because I, I ran out of money. This was back when we were shooting on 16 mil. It was just so expensive to shoot. So I got into debt and I spent years paying off those debts and then years trying to save up to do another film. Bubblegum did quite well in terms of festivals. It got into Berlin, got into Edinburgh, but it made zero difference in terms of finances. I just could not get anything else funded. I tried to do a, another short film in 1998 with... Taylor Mead and Kid Congo Powers. Uh, I even did photographs with them to kind of as if the film had been shot, but it, it just just didn't didn't really w work out. I just took a series of day jobs for quite a few years. Kind of a strange period. <laughs> I'm very curious how your first feature came about and why Romania. How did it get set in Romania? I needed mountains. I figured it was going to be Europe. I just wasn't really going beyond Europe. It just wasn't a possibility. I lived in Hungary at that time. I didn't really have mountains. No, and actually, I lived in Slovakia then because I, um, I had a job in a computer game company writing dialogue for this game that never appeared. Romania just seemed to kind of have what I needed. It wasn't too far. I had a very understanding boss who would give me one week a month unpaid leave to get on the train and go there. And it was quite a long process. It was like two years of pre-production, which at the time, it didn't feel like a big deal because this was, 
you know, this was not within the industry or anything. It was just completely outside. I mean, literally, we we, we would um, hitchhike sometimes, just looking for places, and just a very slow, gradual process. I had this story which needed this kind of mythical, slightly gothic backdrop. And I kind of worked backwards from that. Then I thought, okay, we found the location. Let's find actors within that location. That was the easiest part, in a sense. There was this, there was like a network of theatres where everyone was connected. They all knew each other, and everyone was just open to doing stuff. And there were no auditions and nothing like that. You would just meet people, see if there was a connection or not. Even though the language was difficult, you know, I mean, I I speak a bit of Hungarian because it was like mostly with ethnic Hungarians in Romania. It was quite easy to, to direct because all the actors were friends. They all knew each other. They all trained together, kind of. So they all had the same methods. They all had the same starting points. Whereas with other films, you have actors with vastly different training, starting methods. And sometimes it's like quite difficult to get them to align. But we shot it in 2006. It didn't come out until 2009. There was a very long post-production on that film. And by that time, you were able to not use a Steenbeck, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I can't say I miss Steenbecks. I mean, film, I, I miss film, but not Steenbecks. No, they drove me crazy. You know, the, those, those trim bins where you'd um, sometimes the, the strands of film would just fall in and it would take ages to kind of untangle them. And the log sheets, I miss the dubbing, the dubbing charts. That was a lot of fun. And we sort of pay pay tribute to that in Barbarian Sound Studio, but you know it's, it's interesting because I think I think Spielberg. I don't know about now, but I know a few years ago he was insistent on working on a Steenbeck, and I just I think maybe he's he kind of grew up with it, but I never got on with it because Abbott was around in nineteen ninety six, but it was very expensive. It was very new. But now, yeah, yeah. So that was it was a very different time. And Varga was the last time I used 16 mil because again, the red camera had just come in at that point. And then very soon after that, the Alexa really um, became, yeah, I think it just became commonplace. So I'm, I'm very glad I shot it on 16 mil. But even that, we did it by ourselves. I carried all the stock back to Hungary on the train. It was like something like 14 hours on this night train. I think it was 50, 54 rolls of 16mm film in this backpack. And it was so, so heavy. And there was the fear as well, because Romania hadn't joined the European Union then. So there was this fear that some border guard would just open up the cans. So, you know, at some point at, at night, in, in, in the early hours of the morning, you hear this knock on the door of the couchette on the, on the train. And it's the border guards, you know, they show, we show our passports, we're all kind of groggy-eyed, and he just said, please, please, please do not check the rucksack. And they, they, they didn't. And then we got it developed. We got it developed in Budapest. 54 rolls was like roughly nine hours of film. If I compare that to what we shoot now with an Alexa, it's a lot easier to edit. It was just not much, was just not much there. But it, it was a very, very sort of home, I wouldn't say homemade, but it was like a student film. There were 11 of us in the crew. So, okay, I was there, of course. Two assistants who kind of, we all did everything together. Three for the camera, two for the sound, two chefs. Because a lot of the time we were just cooking in a field. And there's someone documenting it on Super 8. We didn't have any tracks, no Steadicam. We just had a tripod and we had three lamps. That was it. So sometimes you, you, you can you can feel that in the film you know there's some some scenes where it's like really dark and we were using 500t film 
which was very um, with the grain when, when when you're doing the, the grade. If you try and lighten it too much, the grain really starts to kind of get noisy. But I'm still glad we we we, we shot it on film. It's funny because I remember in, in New York when we when we developed Bubblegum, we did it at Gafonti, which is this kind of legendary film lab. I'm pretty sure Abel Ferrara, his early stuff was developed at Gafonti. But that was like just a nice thing for me to have something developed there. What did you end up shooting uh, Barbarian Sound Studio in? We used the Alexa at that point, which then, it was only HD then. Now it's 4K Alexa. I'm not massively into all this 4K and 8K. It's more about the calibration um, and the lenses and so, I mean, I was very happy with the, the look of HD. The film looks gorgeous. Well, I think a lot of it is just Nick Noland, who was trained on film. He shot that Sex Pistols um, film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, The Brothers Quay. So, I think he's just very good at lighting. And, um, yeah, so I think he takes the credit for that. Preparing just was just incredible to look at. And just, I'm so curious how that project came together. Weirdly, I did it as a, as a competition. I entered this thing for Cobra Beer, where you had to do these idents to come on before a commercial. So like a series of, I can't remember now how many, was it 10? Very short idents, which would be like one minute in total. And I just this idea of this kind of Vincent Price, like a kind of like a William Castle production, so much more cutie pie, Eisenhower period, with zombies, you know, with sinking mud using porridge and so on so we kind of did it as 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 a joke and that was it this was this this was before varga this was in 2005 and i just left it but then just as we finished shooting varga i don't know what happened but it kind of came back to me and several things kind of connected in my head and i thought oh, actually we can go somewhere with this we can go somewhere much darker and i think a lot of it came from the memory of someone playing Kathy Barbarian's voice on the Luciano Berio tape composition called um, Visage, which is very, oh, I can't describe it, just very possessed, very strange, very atonal, this kind of voice piece. And yeah, if you play it to most people, they just want you to turn it off. But if you put it in a film, that's a very different thing. And it just got me thinking about people like Penderecki when you put his music when Kubrick used his musical, he, he, even now with David Lynch, he used Pendelecki in, in the new Twin Peaks. Then suddenly people get it. That atonal, dissonant sound kind of activates the imagination if it's paired to an image. So that was the starting point for Barbarian, and it just got me thinking about sound and the, the association of sound and how the context changes its... Um, potency in your head so the sound of a knife going into a cabbage if you're watching a cooking show that's not going to disturb you at all if let's say you're hearing it on 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 the radio and you hear that knife you know it's it's a cooking program then fine but if you're being told that that exact same sound is is going through a human being then of course it's completely changing so that idea of the innocence of sounds, the association, the the corruption of sounds, the, leading to the corruption of the people doing it, the potential corruption of of of, of the audience. I just thought it was quite rich. There were there were many places we 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 could go with it. I, I just I think the central image for me was middle aged men destroying vegetables, which was a kind of like a ridiculous image. 
But at the same time, your knowledge of what is happening with this extremely thuggish, repellent, misogynistic violence is so suddenly you kind of should I laugh? Should I be disturbed? And you're not you're not quite sure when you're watching it where to go with it, which is kind of interesting for me. How did you end up getting uh, Toby Jones to be your lead? That was Shaheen Baig. She was the casting director. I mean, I, I don't think Toby minds my saying this, but originally I asked someone called Adam Bowman because the character of Gilderoy was kind of loosely based on, on, on him. But I realized very quickly that he's not an actor. And when you ask someone to act as themselves, they, <laughs> it's very interesting how they just suddenly stop being themselves. Whereas Toby, of course, he's a, he's a great actor. So I think Shaheen recommended him. He read the script. He was very enthusiastic. So it was very easy to get him if that was not an issue at all. Normally it is with an actor. You know, it's you have to kind of beg and wait for weeks on end. But no, he was straight in. And where did you shoot that one at? We shot it at Three Mills Studio in London. We were going to shoot it in, well, we tried Italy, but it didn't really work out. Then Hungary, we came pretty close to doing it there. You know, we were looking at locations and everything. That didn't work out. And we had to start from scratch and just build. Because I think in Hungary, it was a ready-made studio, which was quite old. We built it from scratch. That was Jennifer Kernker. She was the production designer. Kind of loosely modeled on a mixture of Berio's studio, that's Luciano Berio, with Luigi Nono and Bruno Moderna. I'll come on to um, Moderna quite soon because actually he did a Jello soundtrack. He did Julia Questi's Death Laid an Egg, which has got a connection weirdly to. It's all about poultry. It's kind of silly, but the film within the film in Bavarian is, is poultry. And where Gilderoy comes from, dorking this uh, chicken, which is the emblem of that town. This is in real life. But the chicken actually comes from Milan, which is where the studio was. And then there's that Questi film. Anyway, we modeled it on this studio, but it was like a super studio. It was, it was not a realistic studio. So we also, you know, no studios have this kind of valve technology and have Foley tables and so on. So we were cheating it a little bit. It was very difficult to find a lot of that gear. Most of it ended up in skips or with private collectors. So a few things we got, which were there when Berio and Nono and Moderna had that studio, like the Brule and Kyle oscillators. But yeah, that, that was not easy, finding all that gear. And I think what's interesting for me is I look at that control room and all that stuff could fit on an iPhone now. <laughs> But it's interesting because, like, it's all gone, that stuff, but the fetishism is still there. You look at apps for sound or plugins, they still have the, the visual identity of, the, of those um, pieces of equipment. Right, the knobs and the, the VU meters. And, yeah, it was very nice to see all of that. And I was curious as far as how much of that was real and how much of it was window dressing. Some was definitely window dressing, absolutely. They're just, like, bulk. But other things were actually working. So the, the copycat, the WEM, or the, or the Watkins copycat tape delay machine, that was real. And that's funny because that used to belong to, I was in a band and that was one of my bandmates' copycat. So we actually used that in, in our recordings. But in the film, the voice of Trish Keenan, that is put through a copycat. So there was a physical connection to, but it was it was a different copycat. That's the thing. So the copycat, that her voice goes through is James Cargill's copycat, um, which he did back back in his studio. When we could do that, that was great, but not always, no. 
Of all the weird things to compliment you on, I have to say that I absolutely loved the credits for the movie within the movie. Really struck that chord of authenticity with the classic Italian films. Yeah, well, that was actually Julian House's idea. That was not in the script. I can't remember what, what, I, what, I, what I put in the script. I think it was like a fairly straightforward thing. Um, I asked Julian to do tape boxes for the film. There were a lot of props, you know, these Italian tape boxes and British tape boxes. So we just got talking, really. And I don't know, I think we spoke about the Udai Hertz film, The Cremator, the 1968 film. And that had, I think Jan Schwankmeyer did the credits to that. I'm not sure. But anyway, we, 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 we spoke about it. And um, he's said, why don't you do a fake, instead of doing real credits, why don't you do fake credits? I was really into that idea. Um, I run it past the financiers, you know, because, you know, with, you know, it's like you have to go, go through people. But I think everyone kind of got it that it was quite important to do that. So, yeah, I think we supplied him with the names, a couple of photographs of women screaming, and he did everything else, you know, all, all the other stuff that, that is him. And, I think he uses film and stop motion as well. He's quite rigorous like that. And it's strange because that, that title sequence somehow, I'm going to blow my own trumpet now, but you know, it led on to the Duke of Burgundy and then films like, I think, cause I think he's quite open about it. I think Mom and Dad, the Nicolas Cage horror, you know, I think that film, because Julian did that. So now Julian does a lot of title sequences. <laughs> it's kind of, it's quite funny. Yeah, I was wondering if he did uh, the Duke of Burgundy's uh, sequence as well, because that is gorgeous, too. Yeah, he did that one. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, that book that inspired you having Stan Brackage in there, because I was thinking Brackage, of course, during the montage of butterfly parts. And I'm thinking, oh, well, this is a little bit different than what Brackage would do, where he would tape the wings to the film. (laughs) But it kind of had somewhat of a similar effect. I actually got to see Mothlight on this occasion because before I hadn't seen it, you know, I hadn't seen any brackage. But yeah, I mean, I think he would have disapproved because this was purely digital. I mean, they were, the, the moths were not even real. They were made by a CGI company. They were based on real moths. I think there was, what were they now? I think it was the, the privet hawk moth, the pine hawk moth, the hummingbird hawk moth, and the old lady moth. The pine hawk moth, if I remember rightly, has the the species name is pinastri, which is like the Latin word for for pine. You know, lots of wood in this film. But anyway, that was all done with an effects company. No real moths at all. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure what Brackage would would have thought. Even the ones that were pinned on the boards were those all digital as well. Those were from collections. So any moth that was moving was digital. Any dead moth was got. We got it from a museum or a, some someone's collection. The moth that is just hanging outside of the window. I'm amazed that that's not a real moth because it looked fantastic. That's digital. That was a company called Jellyfish in London. And did you end up shooting Duke of Burgundy in Hungary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was always the plan, really. Um, that was actually that was my most my most enjoyable shoot. I really had a great time doing it. No hassles. I mean, every other every, every other film has had some kind of trauma. Is too strong a word, but um, <laughs> something along those lines. Whether well, the Duke was very straightforward. We from having the idea, which was in when was that? That must have been the summer of two thousand and twelve. It came out 
just over two years later actually came out from from, from the idea to to it showing in in Toronto was just over two years, which which is just bizarre. Usually, you know, it's at least three or four years. Or I have this other film I'm working on; it's like nine years, and I still haven't managed to shoot it. So, yeah, that was that was like a freak film in a nice way. How did you get connected with these actresses? They are just fantastic. Well, again, that that was um, Shaheen Shaheen Beg with Barbarian. We had auditions for the Italian parts, so Chiara came in for that, and then I got to know her on Barbarian, and I, I asked her if she would play Evelyn. Whereas Cynthia, that was a longer process. We tried several people. Um, you know, it's not the kind of role that most people want to jump up and do. So <laughs> it was, you know, it was a process of getting rejections, which is kind of normal. So we were working with Shaheen, just trying to find someone who would do it. And then she suggested Sissa. And I, I didn't, I have to confess, I didn't really know her at that point. She did this called Borgen, which I only saw for the first time this year, which I really loved. I was told she was great. I, I trust Shaheen. I met her. Um, she was in London doing some other stuff. She kind of got it, really. She was quite open to it. She was quite brave. Where did this idea of this relationship, because there is this relationship that's at the core of the film, but then you surround it with these other things like the moths and this whole gynocentric world that they live in. Is the, I, I don't even think there's one man in the film, correct? Apart from me, you know, I, mean, the, 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 I guess the, the t- title was this kind of acknowledgement of the male gaze. You know, it's, it's, it's a male director. But yeah, I mean, it's not explicit. You just kind of realize at some point, just no men. Does that mean it's a world without men? Does it mean just men are in the next village? Is there some kind of segregation between genders? The most important thing for me was to explore bondage and sadomasochism and make a love story out of it, but normalize it. That was very important because I think usually when there's some kind of sexual minority in a film, it's always this kind of social acceptance. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to get into that, but I tried it with. Well, in my head, I tried it with a, with a man and a woman. Mixing the sexes, you had this kind of... I mean, whatever I did, there was some kind of issue. So I think with male and female, there's a power thing that comes into it, especially if, if, if the male is, is, is dominant and is, is a male director. In a way, the easiest thing would have been to have two men, but I'm saving two men for another script I've, 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 I've written. So I had two women, which, which comes with its own baggage. I mean, more and more now, the days of men making films of women... As lovers are kind of <laughs> somewhat numbered, especially after um, Blue is the Warmest Color, which came out as we were doing the Duke, Duke of Burgundy. I mean, yeah, I mean, some people completely savaged me for, for doing this film, but you know, whatever. What, what can you do? But I just wanted to start the film with kink that I kind of knew that a lot of people would not be into without trying to make it unusual. You know, the golden showers, the face sitting. So I'm guessing, you know, 70, 80% or whatever, 90% of the audience are going to be a bit taken aback. But as you get into it, you can recognize the mechanics of the push and pull of compromise in, in a relationship. And you apply it to, to your struggles, whether it's careers or some other kind of sexual stuff or having kids. So really, it, it was just about compromise in a, in a relationship and I, I wanted to be quite neutral which is what I like to do if I can so I'm just asking the audience who should give in so if someone is harbors masochistic sexual fantasies 
should they put a sock in it? I mean, not literally, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but give the other person a bit of peace and quiet and just keep it quiet? Or should the other person indulge those fantasies? And I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to look, just look from both points of view. You know, in hindsight, maybe I did it too much from Cynthia's point of view. I was kind of interested in the idea of, of the domina, this kind of archetypal female figure of fantasy that we've seen you know, a lot since the 60s or even, even the 50s, you know, um, everything from Betty Page to, you know, those Nazi fetish films, you know, is it, is it oh, I forgot what it's called now, is it Ilsa? Yeah, which I actually haven't seen. I've, I, 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 I know about them. The Jess Franco woman in prison films, I'm just looking at, as far as I know, I haven't seen all those films, but what was interesting is they're very much constructs of, of, of a male fantasy and they would never break out of character. They were always in character, but I was interested in going in someone forgetting their lines in someone, some, somehow their real voice breaking through, you know, the, the, the fear of, of performing, the fear of putting on a persona, which is not you. It's a given that, golden showers are normal in this world you know it's not a big deal it's so it's not it's not it's not about that it's about the fact you have this pressure to perform for someone else which can be quite daunting i'm kind of looking at that really um but i'm trying to do it you know with, with, with some hopefully some tenderness some some humor i mean my job is also to provoke my characters and, and to put them in, in situations which are a bit ridiculous you know like what if you're tied up and there's a mosquito buzzing around and biting you. A lot of it is just logically looking. I'm not, you know, I try not to laugh at the characters, but I try to laugh at the situations they they find themselves in. Did you have any help or consultation on this? I know there's a credit in the uh, the in the credits about a human toilet um, expert, but did you have anybody else look at the script and go, "Oh no, this isn't right. This should be this." No, not really. No, it's all steeped in artifice it, it was more about this emotional truth which i assume can only come from the person writing it i know when it came out i remember some people i think it was in san francisco someone who wrote it was very very much part of the bondage and discipline community was saying that they're, they're the problem with this one scene where they always have this the safe word which is kind of um it's like sacrilege to break that safe word in that kind of role play. And there's a scene where Cynthia get, get, gets her revenge on Evelyn and the safe word doesn't work. She says it and then Cynthia carries on. It's not, nothing terrible happens. You know, it's just a, a smelly sock over her face. But at the same time, I remember someone was, was, was quite shocked that I was abusing that, the, the, the sanctity of, of that safe word. But, you know, it is, it, it's a film where characters don't always do the right thing. I'm not saying she did she did did the you know, the right thing there. It's a whole tradition of you know, you have the films which employ those fantasies, which tend to be kind of genre films, but you also have the, the more serious films which really look at it. So such as, you know, Maitress, the uh, Barbara Schroeder film. You have people like Monica Troit, who was dealing with bondage quite a bit, sometimes in documentary, but there was that film with Udo Kier, she made with Elfie Mikesh, the, um, was it called Seduction, the Cruel Woman? 
you had Bruce LeBruce, who was doing that a lot. I mean, my, one of my first, I think my first ever job on a film was on Bruce LeBruce's skin flick, which was heavily sadomasochistic. So, you know, and, you know, I, I think that's a great tradition of golden showers in cinema. I look at, look at, um, Barbara Broadcast with Wade Nichols and, um, CJ Lang or, um, Almodovar's first film, Taxi Zunklo, the, the Frank Ripplo film. So, you know, and at the same time, I'm not trying to be transgressive. I think it, this is people having a great time. You know, to me, there's nothing transgressive about that. I'm just exploring a, a different level of sexual communication. I have always been impressed by the music in your films, and I think you actually worked on the music for at least one of them. How often do you perform on your film soundtracks? I wasn't a band, so occasionally I would use pieces of the music I'd done years ago. So that that would have been on Cotton Varga. Maybe we sneaked it in on Barbarian? I can't remember now. Since Barbarian, we usually asked people to do a soundtrack. You know, Varga was different. It was an existing piece of music by Steve Stapleton and Jeff Cox. And weirdly, I got to know Jeff. I mean, I knew Steve a bit before because I was a big fan of Nurse with Wound. That, that was another New York thing, actually. I think I got into Nurse with Wound in, in I think at Kim's, they, I bought um, a couple of Nurse albums. Um, so I wrote to Steve as a fan. I said, can I use your music for this film? And he was very generous and said, yes. But I got to know Jeff. It turns out Jeff writes with um, Lucille Haji Halilovich, who made Innocence and Evolution and she often works with Gaspar as well. So it was kind of interesting connection there. But yeah, I think after that, it was mostly bands who would do soundtracks. So Broadcast did Barbarian, Cat's Eyes did The Duke of Burgundy, and Cabin of Antimatter did In Fabric. But, but, but Barbarian is a very strange one because Trish Keenan died a few weeks before filming. It's kind of eerie now with, with um, coronavirus, but she died of something very similar. She got swine flu and went into pneumonia, and she was on a on a ventilator. It was it was horrific, really random, unexpected. You just didn't think a young woman in her forties would die. So that was a real shock to the system. And I, I mean, I mean, with no disrespect to to james's music it's it's very hard to listen to that i mean it's quite hard to watch that film to be honest it's very much for me it's very much shrouded in, in all that whereas the duke of burgundy you know time had passed and just a very different set of circumstances that was rachel zephyra faris badwan he's also in the horrors and kevin of antimatter was tim gain and holger zapf and sometimes joe dilworth i mean tim's mostly known because of Stereolab. So yeah, I, I, I guess I was very lucky. I mean, all those bands, I, I was I was a fan of those bands. So I approached all of them as a stranger, really. Yeah, I absolutely loved the Cat's Eye score for um, Duke of Burgundy. So good. And I mean, just from the, the beginning on, and then you kind of almost have like a music video near the end of it. Oh, yes, it's true. Yeah, again, I think in hindsight, I think that film can get a bit too montage-like sometimes. Yeah, that was not intentional. It just kind of ended up that way. But yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Where did the idea for In Fabric come from? I think it was a mixture of things. I, I was really into department stores. It was a great one in my hometown called Jackson's. Jackson's of Reading, which closed down, sadly. I went there all my life. I used to go as a kid. I would say I was taken there as a kid. A very, very different thing. I think the film is trying to take this 
I think someone called it this critique of consumerism, but I didn't see it that way at all. It was um, kept us a bit of playful satire sometimes, but it's much more about this childhood perspective on on, on shopping and the, the the mystery of the shops and the texture of clothing, and which leads into fetishism and so on. And you know, as a kid, you you sort of parked in your little <laughs> in some corner and you're seeing the, the all these women shopping and you just see what is what is a suspender belt what is that thing you know just what is that there's this great mystery to clothing which is going on the body and that you, you have to sort of fill in the the dots as a as a kid and shops were very silent back then they didn't you know they're like nightclubs now but back then it's just the sound of muttering, people talking very softly, like a library almost. Those catalogues, which had this very thin, glossy paper, this kind of 80 GSM weight, and um, the sound of those pages turning. So it really led into this, I think, what, what we call ASMR now, I mean, or, or was it autonomous sensory meridian response, which I didn't realize all my films had it. Someone actually diagnosed me as having it. <laughs> I had to look it up on Wikipedia to find out what it is. And, but it, it made complete sense, not just in terms of the films I'd made, but also the, the music I was listening to. Again, Nurse with Wound, um, Robert Ashley, things like Automatic Writing, Luke Ferrari. It all had that very essential, and I would, I would stress, not, not sexual, but you know, essential tactile approach to certain sounds, which would kind of put you in a, like a semi-trance. I would say. So the film really goes in that direction. I was watching a lot of YouTube videos. There was that, but going back to the, to the fetishism thing, it's not a fashion film. It's a film about our visceral response to clothing, how we feel when we put it on. Are we able to escape ourselves, escape our day-to-day problems, especially this year, my God? Or are we somehow reminded of ourselves and trapped, you know, are, are we are prisoners to our perception of our, of, of our bodies, you know, like body dysmorphia. So, you know, I think the, the, the second couple in, in the film, you have this gentleman who has a, a hosiery fetish, uh, which he's rather embarrassed about, and he can't really communicate to his fiancée. She has body dysmorphia, which she's more than willing to communicate, but he doesn't get it. So I, I thought that was quite realistic. Couples who don't really get each other, they have their daily neurotic obsessions which they can't really the other person doesn't comprehend i was just fascinated by fetishism association of clothing how clothing of someone can disgust you how you know like with sheila when she gets gwen's underwear in in, in the laundry and also dead people's clothing how powerful that is the this the dream in the film with with marianne jean baptiste's mother and her, her her dress I buy a lot of secondhand clothing and sometimes you see stains on that clothing. Sometimes you smell body odor on the armpits and you have this proxy intimacy with someone who might be dead who you will never see that person ever. But you can smell that person in the most intimate way possible, which is just very odd. So I think in fabric came out of all those thoughts really. At the same time I wanted to make, you know, like a, a sort of fairly straight ahead genre film whether I succeeded or not is another thing but I wanted to kind of use those thoughts as the fuel for that kind of genre piece you talked about how easy it was to get the Duke of Burgundy made I'm curious was there a struggle to get in fabric made 
Yeah, not a huge struggle. It, it was it was quite a difficult film to shoot. It took a long time because I was doing some radio plays in between, and then I actually was going to do another film, a, a spy thriller. That was a whole mess. Once you start doing a thriller, when people start forcing big actors down your throat, which is fine, but when you go down that path, you, you you're waiting sometimes 10 weeks for one actor to, to give you an answer. Sometimes you're flying somewhere to meet an actor, but don't turn up. And it's just, it's like, what am I doing? Just, and I, I just got to a point where I, I just, I just had enough. I wrote in fabric concurrently to that. So I actually had it there, but I couldn't really apply to people because like the same finances were financing the spy film. So actually we had Marion Jean-Baptiste attached to this for quite a while. But we couldn't go to the places like the you know the BFI, for instance. They they already had the spy films, so we were going to, to private financiers. Then it was just she's. I mean, I I, I I'm sure. I, I hope she doesn't mind my, my my saying this, but you know you know what it's like with private money. They want big stars, and uh, it's nothing personal. It's they, they all know she's she's a great actor, but you know they want huge names. Um, it just didn't didn't work out. So eventually. When I scrapped the spy film, the BFI just switched onto in fabric, and it was that was really quick and easy. And then Marion was in the lead. And I said, oh, "Yeah, absolutely fine." And BBC got involved. Bankside, Bankside was like well, they were actually first. But once that happened, it was like nine months to get to get the money. You add the time with the spy film and other stuff. It ended up being four years between the Duke of Burgundy and in fabric, which is what I'm going through now with my new film because we shot in fabric in 2017 and. At the earliest, we'll shoot my new film. Actually, my new film, just as you know, it just got cancelled, actually. So anyway, that's, that's a whole other story. But yeah, You did a, a short for uh, something called The Field Guide to Evil. Did that get released, or is that just coming out now? That got released. Yeah, actually, that's another thing I did, yeah, because that, that, that took a bit of time. I really enjoyed doing that. That, that was actually great fun to do. That was Ant Timpson, who did the ABCs of Death, and he did this new thing called The Field Guide to Evil. I loved doing that. That was... And I was really happy with the results. And um, yeah, it was just one of those dream things. That, but I actually don't have a copy of it. So I, I assume it's on, on DVD. I, I know it did festivals. There's some pretty good films on there. I mean, Veronica France is on there as well, a bunch of other, other people. Um, so yeah, it, it's I, I don't want to oversell it, but it is worth seeing. Are you the same Peter Strickland that was the additional photographer for The Great Chicken Wing Hunt? Oh, God. Yes, I am. Yeah. That's Matt Reynolds. Yeah. I knew him when I lived in Bratislava. When I had my computer game job, I just did. I just filmed him talking. Because he went to America to do this whole chicken wing thing. And I didn't, I didn't do that. I just filmed him in Slovakia. It's like not not much at all, like half an hour, I think. I am curious, how did you end up in Hungary? Well, I got this inheritance, which is how I made Varga. So I hadn't traveled that much, apart from Greece. I'm a half Greek, so you know we'd go to Greece every summer. But beyond that, you know, you know of course, I went to America to make to make bubblegum. But beyond that, I hadn't seen Europe at all. I hadn't even been to France or Spain or anywhere like that. So I had a job in London, like a regular nine-to-five job, and... I had this, when my uncle died, I had this, this money. It was a mixture of just wanting to just see more, but also knowing that maybe there was a chance to do something there. Because actually, I remember now, because I had a script that I wrote in 1997, my first script that came close to getting made into a film, but it didn't happen. But 
no one would trust me to direct it. So I gave it to an advertising director who would always shoot adverts in Hungary. And he recommended Budapest as this great place to shoot in. And I thought, I'd just take a look. And it, it, it was amazing. And then, of course, you have this whole tr- tradition of filmmaking in Hungary. You know, people like, you know, Miklos Janshaw, Karoy Mak, Belatar. I guess he's, he's the most famous. Yeah, it, it's odd because growing up at Reading, it was just drummed into us that London was the place to be. If you wanted to make a film, you had to move to London. You would find opportunity there. And I didn't. Because the thing is, you know, you have to get a job to pay the rent you're too tired after work so i would just see films i would go to gigs and so on i didn't get anywhere in terms of making films i didn't actually i didn't even write a single word i didn't do anything i spent two years having a a great time and i watched a hell of a lot listened to a lot that was good but i realized it's just not happening so i wanted to move somewhere cheaper where i wouldn't have to work that much so it sounds very imperialist, you know, the, the Brit moving to Eastern Europe, but but it kind of worked, and it was it was lonely as well. I didn't know anyone because um, in London I, I had friends, so it was, there was a social life to have. So the best thing for me was just to be isolated and to get back in, into writing. Because in the nineties I, I wrote quite a lot because I was at home in Reading. In London, no, nothing. So London was it was I think in terms of my film work, it was it was a big waste of time. <laughs> But you did get to absorb bands and movies. I'm sure those helped inform you for other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, London was great like that. It was really, uh, yeah, I saw a hell of a lot. That that is true. The film that fell apart recently, is that the one that you've been working nine years trying to get that going? No, the nine-year one is another one called Night Voltage, which I I kept announcing thinking it's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. That's set in New York, actually, 1980. I think around that time when I, when I wrote it nine years ago, I was watching a lot of gay porn, specifically stuff like Wakefield Pool, Peter Derome, Jim Bidgood. I think the whole aesthetic, especially watching Bijou, my God, it was um, extraordinary. So uh, it's kind of interesting to me, you know, because I think I, I, I mentioned porno and people tend to sort of suddenly try to get you to shut up. <laughs> I've done it in film schools and I'm not trying to be provocative. It's like, you know, when I say porno, you know, I'm not talking about internet porn. I have no knowledge of that. I'm talking a very specific period in the 70s, mainly gay, but also straight as well. I don't know what it was. I think people were on fire then, but just the imagination was so volatile. It could go into some really crazy, crazy places. And it's not about whether you're turned on or not turned on. You know, that that's kind of by the by. It's just cultural aspect as well you know i think in the way people would merge between the gay stuff and the straight stuff people like annie sprinkle or wade nichols jamie gillis as as, as well um but you could tell there was this very strong sensibility that came from people like warhol you know i think with wakefield paul he was he was working with 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 warhol he was also in ballet but it's a tradition that i loved from New York cinema that would go back to the Kushar brothers, to Jack Smith, where people would build sets in their own apartments and your own living space would turn into this portal, into this cinematic fantasy world. So Bijou has that. You know, he shot it in in his own apartment. And so I I was really fascinated by this kind of of covert world. It's not the kind of thing that's going to get you much funding. (laughs) That's why it's taken nine years, but I wanted to make something very male. It was almost like a um, companion piece to the Duke of Burgundy. 
But yeah, we're still trying to get it made. I don't know. It's funny. There was a moment in Duke of Burgundy where I was reminded of Pink Narcissus, the bit good film. All right. I imagine that you've seen that and enjoyed that one as well. I have it on my shelf. I can see it, actually. Yeah, yeah. I have the BFI BFI version. Yeah, the Scala used to show that, but I never actually saw it at the Scala. I, I, I bought it on DVD much later. And there was a book as well of his photographs, which I'd love to get hold of. It's fantastic. Yeah, I would love to get my hands on, on that book. It's that Jack Smith book as well, the beautiful book, which is extremely rare. Bob Miser was another one. Because I, I did a music video a year ago, which is very much this kind of Bob Miser tr- tribute. Because, again, the, the Joe D'Alessandro connection, because I think he started off doing these physique films with Bob Miser. But I was really interested in the idea of, back then, it was you, you could get prosecuted for having this, this kind of material. So they'd somehow use heterosexual tropes of cops and robbers or that kind of rough and tumble stuff as a way to kind of arouse the audience. <laughs> we did this music video of two men in the changing room, man spreading and getting annoyed with each other, and it ends up in this fight. But of course, they're, they're both naked. But yeah, the, the miser stuff was great as well. Like 42nd Street Hood, great title as well. He did magazines as well. What was that thing he was part of? It was the AMG, the Athletics Model Guild. So they'd have these kind of brochures where you could order film. You know, you could get like a Super 8 cartridge or a 16mm roll. So a lot of it was physique, bodybuilding types. But again, it would launch into sort of, you know, a bit of frat boy initiations or um, two college dorm mates having a fight, which would end up, you know, with them stripping each other naked. But yeah, it's... um, Bob Miser, yeah, very interesting stuff. Very, very, I mean, very, very different. What we talked about earlier, like De Rome or Paul, which is much more evocative and poetic and abstract. The, the, the Bob Miser stuff is pretty straight ahead. What are you doing now? Now, especially since what you're working on isn't there anymore. I write for hire. That's my meat and potato kind of income. That's what keeps me going be- between films. Which I enjoy, actually. I have to say, I probably enjoy it more, more, more and more. I think I prefer it to, to making films. I, I just, I'm so sick of making films at the moment. It's just a very nice lifestyle. You just, I have a little office. I, I walk to work. You do what you're told to do. It's, but there's nothing at stake. It's, it's not my baby. It's, it's, it's not my vision. So I don't mind if someone tells me what to do. But when it's my work, when it's my baby, I, 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 I get quite affronted, to be honest, when I'm told to change things but i think more and more we're just kind of it's heading in that direction it's just getting harder and harder i mean with with this film that got cancelled you know we had the money it's just the whole bunch of things backfired including the it wasn't just a pandemic you know a whole bunch of stuff went wrong before but that was all set to go you know we, we, we had a cast we had finance but you know whatever these things happen We are back, and we are talking about the Duke of Burgundy. I kind of brought this up with Strickland, and I am curious. You know, we talked, like I said last week, we talked about Fassbender. 
and the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. And there's the question, and I think that if you want to do hot take, you can be like, it is so not right for a man to tell a woman's story, especially these days. It's not right for that to happen. And then you have to wonder, well, then what kind of stories am I limited to? (laughs) Can I only tell stories about Men, if I'm a male filmmaker, how do you come down on this thing? I think I know, but I am curious. Where do you come down on this idea? Does Peter Strickland have the right to make this film? Do you want me to give you my honest answer? Go for it. I think that's fucking bullshit, and it makes me so angry. This idea that you can only write what you know, if you're writing a memoir or nonfiction or whatever, when you're making a fiction film... As long as you're trying to make the best film you could make and have it feel authentic and respectful when you're telling someone else's story, then I don't have any problem with it. But I I think it's insane when people get so territorial like that. And I do understand why, because I think there are a lot of male filmmakers who have stories about women or stories with female characters who feel completely inauthentic and they're not they're basically just a male fantasy but i don't think anyone in their right mind would watch duke of burgundy and say this feels like a male fantasy and this is a movie that some guy made for other guys to jerk off to unless i'm wrong I totally agree with you. I think as a blanket statement, disqualifying a creator immediately based on gender, there's there's issues there. But I also totally agree that cis men tend to mistell stories that are outside of their realm, realm of experience the most. I agree with you, but I also would say that it's because they make more films than anyone else. So maybe that's why that number is so inflated. And the point that I would agree with is there that I think a lot of these people are really arguing for is that there need to be more voices. Yeah, and that's that was going to be my next qualifying point is that it speaks to the patriarchal nature of how most filmmakers and storytellers have historically been cis men anyway. The need is more for diversity and inclusion than rather sort of disqualifying these storytellers from storytelling. So we have different perspectives on the whole breadth of stories to be told and not just, you know, white dudes or whatever. One of the things that makes... Peter so unique as a director is the majority of his films are about women and they all tell these sort of complicated nuanced stories. I mean, I would encourage anyone and this is like my high horse that I'm always on. If you have, if you like Duke of Burgundy and you haven't seen his first film, Catalan Varga, which is a rape revenge drama, it's, the single, probably the single most sensitive, realistic rape revenge movie out there. Like it's not gratuitous. It tells a story that feels realistic without going into this kind of like fantasy revenge territory. Even though it doesn't have the same use of texture that Duke of Burgundy does, it's similarly beautiful. It was shot in 
Romania and Hungary. And so there, there's all this great stuff in the Transylvanian forest, but it's basically about a single mother who's trying to process this trauma that happened to her. And it's so sensitive. His sensitivity and thoughtfulness as a filmmaker and a storyteller is the through line throughout all his work, because visually, Varga does not resemble his other films, because I think partially he has the means in his subsequent films to make them more designed rather than pastoral. But that same ethos you mentioned is apparent in all of his movies. That is sort of the ultimate goal is for people to tell thoughtful stories. Like, I don't need there to be realism in films. I mean, you know, we talked about how much we love last year, Marion Bod on our episode last year. But having your stories feel authentic, whether it's something you've lived or not, I think that's what's most important to me. You have to do the work. It's your duty to do the work if you're, you know, going to put that out there, right? I think of someone like Sean Baker, who's also a white man, and his uh, Tangerine and Florida Project and even Starlet, and how he immerses himself in these cultures that are not natural to him in order to tell these stories from a lens that is kind of from the vantage of a very respectful, thoughtful tourist and not someone who's lived it. I can see all of that on one side, and then on the other side, you get things like Joe Ramsey's uh, things breasts can't actually do, like with that whole idea of like men writing women characters or writing women and just having no idea how they work, like physically how they yeah, work. It's really embarrassing <laughs> so, a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, with the, their breasts throbbing <laughs> resentment, like those kind oh, of yeah. things. You know, the noises that apparently, Sam, when your nipples get hard, they make all kinds of noises. It sounds like somebody scraping a diamond down a glacier. <laughs> Can you play it for us, just like the moth uh, scene in uh, I in will, Burgundy? But really high pitched. <laughs> and then I won't turn it off when you ask or don't ask, but but passive aggressively imply that you want me to turn it off. We will not have asked, Jim. You created, you made a movie, Library Hours, about two women characters. I mean, did that even pass through your head at all when you were putting it together? Were you just like, I'm going to tell a story. It doesn't matter that I'm a man and my characters are women. After all, I'm a man and you're a woman. <laughs> at least last time I checked. <laughs> I definitely had a lot of concerns and I, I still do. And that's, you know, part of my own approach is I do try and be thoughtful and respectful and sort of um, do my re research as a cis male filmmaker to kind of see where my experiential blind spots might be, you know, without sort of digressing too much. I think there are stories that just aren't my stories or things I don't feel equipped to tell. But what I'm hearing from both of you, which I also agree with, is that at a high level, the most important thing is that you're thoughtful and respectful in your approach. And so when I sit out to make library hours, um, you know, that was kind of like 
the main thing that was sort of driving the ideation and the execution of that. But at the same time, part of why I make movies, it wasn't always this way, but it's sort of since become this way of subverting the more normal approach that male filmmakers take, Um, you know, especially with my experiences, just like as a film nerd talking to other cis male film nerds and kind of um, hearing their personal tastes and how informed by either subtle or blatant patriarchy or misogyny those tastes are and how often things that challenge their worldview uh, either is met with disgust or aggression or just flies over their head completely. Case in point, I have like a really strong aversion to fight club fans because of how completely, how completely they ignore the satirical aspect, you know, of, of the source material. First of all, that's written by a gay author and how it's this whole, you know, send up of, or rumination, um, and criticism of machismo and things like that or uh you know the incel idolization of like a travis bickle or scott pilgrim or joker or um even like a patrick bateman i am so sorry to interrupt you but i'm so happy that you included scott pilgrim in that you get a gold star it's so annoying because and and then there's also this confusion where then like the dudes are like well what's so wrong with liking those things and it's like yeah i i like Uh, some of those movies that I mentioned, but like to identify with like a Travis Bickle or a fucking Joker. Are you you kidding me? It's definitely a weird world to be in is to be a film nerd and exist in this space where so many of them do have that mindset. Like the, the Eli Roth fans is how I like to think of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And And why, why hasn't that guy been canceled yet? You know? There's stuff all over the internet about how he's treated women on film sets and like people, people have taken many. Oh yeah. And people have taken many screenshots about the, the shit he used to do on MySpace. Like, <laughs> and it just, it's, it's definitely strange to be a female film critic in that space, but that I think not to sort of tie this back to Duke of Burgundy, but or or I guess to tie it back, that's why I'm so hopeful that directors like Peter exist, because I think it's the opposite side of that, where somebody's saying, yes, I like all of this Euro horror, and I like all of these potentially challenging things, and I'm going to include references to them in my films, while making these films that feel much more human and sensitive to women's experiences and that treat women like they're actual people and not just this kind of things to be killed. Yes. Or things to have breasts that throb with resentment or whatever it was. <laughs> things to be fucked or killed or married, you know? Yes. Um, well, yeah, no. And when when I talked about how influential Duke was on the creation of Library Hours, Peter Strickland's filmmaking style and his approach that was also informed the approach in that regard, like you said, that he's sort of um, subverting these genres and these tropes in a way where he's appropriating them, but also trying to um, um, 
losing the, the verb maybe. here. Yeah, or or transforming them or repurposing them, you know, or, or even modernizing them. I'm so curious if the people who were scandalized by Duke of Burgundy, what they would think of if they saw like a Belle du Jour. Uh, it would be like Madeline Kahn in Clue, where she's like, flames? Flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. I feel like I've maybe talked about this on the projection booth before, but writing about a lot of the more subversive films that I do, I've run into equal amounts of harassment from the Travis Bickle fans, but also from women who are scandalized that I would like some of the things that I like. So it's like, I sort of find it equally frustrating where, you know, you have these Eli Roth fans who just are basically incels, but then you also have these sort of, these kind of descendants of second wave feminism whose hearts are clearly in the right place and they are justifiably angry at the way that women have been treated, but at the same time seem to not be able to appreciate any kind of nuance or sexual transgression without feeling really attacked. And that's something that I have a hard time understanding. But I mean, some of those scenes where Catherine Deneuve's character can only get genuine sexual pleasure, which the blissful look on her face in those scenes is just perfect. But it's like she can only get it from extreme humiliation or from physical violence, like in those implied scenes with my favorite actor ever, Pierre Clemente, who it just is perfect. But it's like you probably could not make that film today without it turning into something horrible like Fifty Shades of Grey, where it's basically here's an abusive relationship. And directed by a man to boot. Yeah. <laughs> a man who might have had a b- bigger foot fetish than Tarantino, I'm not sure. Is that possible? But someone I respect a lot more, let's just say that. I don't want to take this in a bad direction at the very end of the episode, but it's funny that we're talking about this now, especially in the context of how S&M films are often presented by mainstream filmmakers and interpreted by mainstream critics as just being abusive relationships, because there's been all this stuff that's come out about Marilyn Manson and the way that he abused his younger partners, all of whom in their testimonies were coerced into non-consensual S&M relationships, but didn't really realize how, what their limits were at the time because they just didn't have the frame of mind or the experience And so it's kind of interesting in that context to see something like Duke of Burgundy, where it's a much milder, less abusive, but very distantly similar situation where it seems like Cynthia just knows that she's not comfortable, but doesn't want to say that because she doesn't want to disappoint her partner. That's what makes it so heartbreaking. You mentioned a few times about how these things, you know, the, the optics of certain behaviors in this film, if the genders were reversed or it was a 
a heterosexual couple instead of a, a queer one. And, um, or even if the ages were reversed. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I think it, it definitely, there is an association that is annoying when people immediately gravitate towards the subject matter on film in fictional film that does need to be reckoned with like very directly in real life because it is it is a thing and it but it's a thing more akin to uh you know the manipulation in 50 shades like that that came out i think not too long before the gian gameshi stuff right oh yeah which which is I also forgot about that yeah and that that that's what concerned me about like a 50 shades as well because i knew how sort of pop bondage it was being billed as and i just thought about like you know these like dudes in college who probably thought they were being subversive and cool and sexy by like sort of you know trying these really like gross moves on women and like sort of like slapping a bondage sticker on it which is kind of like what what the whole gene gameshi thing came out as yeah definitely and i think that's part of what makes it so frustrating is because you know, if you've made it this far into the episode and you have no context for what actual sadomasochistic relationships are are like or what they're about, regardless of what somebody's fantasy is or what their fetishes are, the core is always communication and talking about what your limits are and what you're comfortable with and what you're not. And I think it's such a shame and such a, sh- a source of frustration that in so many conventional relationships, we're taught to not, we're not taught to have those conversations. And so I think you wind up in both straight and queer relationships, you wind up with people gradually eroding their boundaries and doing things they're not comfortable doing because they want to please a partner. And because you've never had this basic consent conversation where it's like, okay, here are things I'm open to trying. Here are things I don't feel comfortable doing. A lot of this Me Too stuff has brought that so much to light that like, we just don't talk to our partners in the way that we need to to have healthy relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I think, also one of the sort of like universal lessons even though it's not a didactic film but like a a big takeaway from duke of burgundy is that you know the the things you're that are kind of more just in s&m relationships are applicable to any kind of relationship like you said it's like communication and boundaries and affirmative consent and you know thankfully there's sort of more discourse around that now but yeah i mean there's so much time that has gone on without that, that leads to the things you mentioned. Yeah. And it's not just sex stuff either when it comes to like your limits and what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do. I mean, I don't do housework. I'm just kidding. I don't do windows. Mike doesn't own a vacuum white. That's your real name <laughs> that's is- right actually actually vacuuming is my favorite thing i love when you can make the lines on the carpet and then kind of do cross oh, yeah. hatching i love the that lines in the carpet it's uh, it's very sad yeah uh if either of you ever want to come vacuum at my house 
I do not take the same sort of pleasure in this cross-hatching. <laughs> you could have one of those robotic uh, things. Uh, I don't even... Yeah, you uh, can Roomba? name those, can't you? I think you can. They're, pretty soon they'll they be sentient. pretty much are already. But also, if there was a Roomba or some sort of automatic underwear washing device, then there would be no plot for Duke of Burgundy. And where would we be? <laughs> Actually, Sam, that's a really good point. And I'm not being a jerk because that takes us back to my question about electricity because she does mention a washing machine, doesn't she? She does. Okay, but there it, we go. But Bingo, bango. Old timey washing machines where it's just like hot, hot water and oh. you have that scab. Oh, the washing board. I've got one of those. Or the yes, ringer I thing. Have yeah. My great grandmother's in my kitchen, which is decorative and I do not do wash on it. But I suppose. If I ever got my own Evelyn, then she could wash my my underwear on this on this 1920s washing board. <laughs> okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. One of the most important contemporary films of its time. I wouldn't last six hours down there, let alone six months. An epic adventure of survival. <laughs> and self-discovery. The Disney Channel will proudly present Charles Martin Smith in an outstanding motion picture directed by Carol Ballard. Never Cry Wolf. That's right, we're going from BDSM of Duke of Burgundy to Disney, what they look at, Never Cry Wolf. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Jim. So, Sam, what has been keeping you busy lately? I have a book coming out called The Legacy of World War II and European Art House Cinema, which should be out from McFarland later this spring. And there are actually a lot of films like Duke of Burgundy in it, because the whole focus is on World War II themed films made in Europe from 45 to 85. And so a lot of them cover similarly kind of sexually transgressive ground. But I also feel like I have to mention, and this came out a while ago, but for Senses of Cinema, if if you're not familiar, it's this really incredible online film journal that's an academic journal. There's so much great writing in there. But they do these themed dossiers, and I contributed to one on Peter Strickland's work that you can read the whole thing on Senses of Cinema for free, but it also got turned into a book that's just called Strickland. If you don't live in Australia, it is wicked expensive to have it shipped. So I would say just go on Senses of Cinema and search for Peter Strickland and the whole thing will come up. But I wrote about uh, Catalan Varga, Duke of Burgundy, and Cobbler's Lot, which is this short film that he did, and the ways in which he uses this kind of like fairy tale forest sort of fantasy themes. So you should go read all of those essays if you like Duke of Burgundy. And Jim, how about you? What have you been up to? When you asked me this a year ago during uh, the Marion Bad episode, I was developing my, my first feature film, which... Since then, the pandemic has indefinitely pushed that back, but I'm still chugging away on it. Uh, it's fine because I don't have any control over COVID, but it's also, you know, the, the silver lining is that the 
the time that has passed has allowed our script and our pitch materials to circulate longer and wider and land in the hands of um, some people who might otherwise not have been interested or had time to look at that stuff. Um, but, you know, since people are home or less busy, that's sort of been a benefit to that. And so that's not as inspired by uh, the work of Peter Strickland as the aforementioned short I made, Library Hours. This one's more of a, a supernatural thriller and a multi-era murder mystery that's kind of like Badlands meets per- Personal Shopper. Yeah, with a bit of um, like a sharp objects, unreliable narrator framework. That sounds awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And a serial killer thrown in for uh, for good measure. Can you have a movie without a serial killer in it and have it still be good? Yeah. uh, Who who knows these days? I will say that that might be the Strickland element, you know, the the page I take from his book, because it is definitely less about the serial killer and more about the narrative of the victims. If people want to check out that progress or uh, my earlier work, including the aforementioned library hours, they can do so at my website, which is just jimvendiola.com is one word. And they can sort of check out my social media accounts from that site. Well, I will be sure to link to that when uh, folks go over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com. And they can also find out a little bit more about today's episode. I'll link over to Sam's story about Strickland as well. And there'll also be a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. So 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.